The Braille Monitor, Volume 63, Number 5, May 2020. Gary Wonder, Editor. Distributed by email, in ink print, in Braille, and on USB flash drive by the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono, President. Telephone 410-659-9314. Email address nfb at nfb.org. Website address http colon slash slash www.nfb.org. nfbnet.org. http colon slash slash www.nfbnet.org. NFB Newsline Information 866-504-7300. Like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash National Federation of the Blind. Follow us on Twitter at NFB underscore voice. Watch and share our videos. YouTube.com slash Nations Blind. Letters to the President, address changes, subscription requests, and orders for NFB literature should be sent to the National Office. Articles for the Monitor and letters to the Editor may also be sent to the National Office or may be emailed to GWunder. G-W-U-N-D-E-R at nfb.org. Monitor subscriptions cost the Federation about $40 per year. Members are invited and non-members are requested to cover the subscription cost. Donations should be made payable to National Federation of the Blind and sent to National Federation of the Blind, 200 East Well Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230-4998. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. The National Federation of the Blind is not an organization speaking for the blind. It is the blind speaking for ourselves. Each issue is recorded on a thumb drive, also called a memory stick or USB flash drive. You can read this audio edition using a computer or a National Library Service digital player. The NLS machine has two slots, the familiar book cartridge slot just above the retractable carrying handle and a second slot located on the right side near the headphone jack. This smaller slot is used to play thumb drives. Remove the protective rubber pad covering this slot and insert the thumb drive. It will insert only in one position. If you encounter resistance, flip the drive over and try again. Note, if the cartridge slot is not empty when you first insert the thumb drive, the digital player will ignore the thumb drive. Once the thumb drive is inserted, the player buttons will function as usual for reading digital materials. If you remove the thumb drive to use the player for cartridges, when you insert it again, reading should resume at the point you stopped. You can transfer the recording of each issue from the thumb drive to your computer or preserve it on the thumb drive. However, because thumb drives can be used hundreds of times, we would appreciate their return in order to stretch our funding. Please use the return envelope enclosed with the drive when you return the device. Volume 63, Number 5, May 2020, Contents Join the virtual 2020 NFB Convention. Federationism in the Time of the Coronavirus by Chris Danielson A timely gift from a talented and generous author, by Jonathan Mosen. Counseling and Coronavirus, A Perspective on Well-Being, by Candace Chapman and Jeannie Massey. Our Social Committee for Staff is Still Hard at Work, by the Social Committee. The NFB of Colorado Takes the Distancing Out of Social Distancing, by Jessica Beecham. Math That Feels Good, Enabling Sighted and Blind People to Share the Mathematical Experience, by Al Steve Benson Dies, by Barbara Pierce.
Doing What's Necessary by Stephen O. Benson Across Three Continents and Generations, A Candle of Hope is Ignited by Syed Rizvi A Taboo Topic for People Who Are Blind, Hearing Loss Gasp by Marsha Drenth Learning to Lead One Step at a Time by Brittany Ingram Owning Your Voice by Nina Maranka The Blessed Blind Big Brother by Sean Calloway Blueprint for Learning by Stephen O. Benson Recipes, Monitor Miniatures Join the virtual 2020 NFB Convention Due to the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind, originally scheduled for Houston, Texas from July 14 through 19, is going virtual. Celebrating its 80th year, the organized blind movement is delighted to take this opportunity to connect blind Americans for the largest gathering of the blind in history. The 2020 National Convention will include most of the elements conventioneers expect, with some new twists. Members are requested and non-members are invited to register at no cost for the convention in order to get access to exclusive offers, convention announcements, door prizes, and other content. But not so fast. Where do we send door prizes? Send door prizes to National Federation of the Blind, Attention, Convention, FS, 200 East Wells Street, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Remember that you must register to be eligible, so don't miss out. Registration for the convention, as well as details of the convention schedule and logistics as they become available, can be found at www.nfb.org convention. Those who booked convention reservations at the Hilton Americas or the Marriott Marquis in Houston will receive a full refund of any room deposit collected. The hotel will contact you no later than May 1 to confirm the amount to be credited. Please be patient and wait to hear from the hotels. They are severely understaffed during the coronavirus crisis. Similarly, if you previously registered for the 2020 convention online or through the mail, you will be contacted about your registration fees and banquet ticket purchases. Mark your calendars for July 14 through 19 and plan to connect with your Federation family across the country. Additionally, as local conditions permit, Federation affiliates will organize in-person gatherings in conjunction with convention events to enhance the convention experience. The 2020 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind will connect blind Americans from anywhere and build opportunities everywhere. Make plans to be a part of it and join the largest gathering of the blind anywhere. Register for the 2020 National Convention. Registrations must be postmarked by May 31. Please register online at www.nfb.org slash registration or complete and mail all requested information on the form below to National Federation of the Blind, Attention, Convention Registration, 200 East Wells Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Registrant name, space provided, address, city, state, zip code, spaces provided. Phone number, email, spaces provided. Upon registering for the 2020 National Convention, more information regarding the various formats and agenda will be provided as soon as it is available. While registration is free, we welcome and encourage donations to support our ongoing work to protect the rights of all blind Americans. Please note that the most up-to-date information will be available at nfb.org convention. If you have questions, please contact nfb at nfb.org or call 410-659-9314. We look forward to your participation. Federationism in the Time of the Coronavirus by Chris Danielson There is a photo on the page, the caption, Chris Danielson. From the editor, Chris Danielson is the Director of Public Relations for the National Federation of the Blind, 
but that one line cannot begin to convey who he is, what he does, and how very lucky we are to have him. In the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, Chris has managed to outline almost everything we are doing without making it so detailed that it would be tiring to read and fail in its attempt to give an overview that hints at and gives information as to where more detail can be had. Everything we are doing, from the live online presidential release with more than 800 participants, to the affiliate activities that combine education, physical fitness workouts, and just a chance for some socialization and sharing among friends demonstrates what family members do to reach out and help other family members. Here is one of the finest articles I have ever been privileged to help in publishing. Whatever else may yet happen in the year 2020, it has already seen its defining event, the pandemic spread of the novel coronavirus, which causes a respiratory disease imaginatively named Coronavirus Disease 2019, COVID-19. Despite the clinical blandness of its name, this illness is not to be belittled. At this writing, there are over 369,000 cases in the United States alone, resulting in over 11,000 deaths, as well as nearly 1.5 million cases worldwide, with a death toll of over 76,000. That is why a virus that some originally hoped would be confined to the discrete geographical location where it was identified late last year has upended the lives of virtually everyone in our nation. The way that we all work learn and socialize has dramatically changed, with most of us staying in our homes and venturing out as little as possible in order to slow the spread of the virus. Although the disease is killing only a fraction of the people who get it, many of whom experience only mild cold or flu symptoms, if any, that number is nonetheless staggering, as is the number of people who experience symptoms that are serious enough to require hospitalization. Therefore, the vast majority of state governments have ordered increasingly tight restrictions on human activity, shutting down many businesses entirely while limiting the scope of others and requiring everyone who can to work from home. The order also extends to emptying primary and secondary schools as well as college and university campuses. These orders have devastated our economy, taken investments and retirement plans on a roller coaster ride, dramatically increased unemployment, overwhelmed our health care system, turned grocery shopping into competitive hoarding, and stretched the capacity of broadband internet connections to name just a few results. In short, there is not an individual, a business, or an organization that is not affected by this serious and frightening outbreak, and that very much includes the National Federation of the Blind. Fortunately, our movement continues to demonstrate the love, hope, determination, and resilience that have always been a part of who we are and how we operate. With the steady and strong leadership of President Riccobono and our National Federation of the Blind Board of Directors, as well as our affiliate, chapter, and division leaders, combined with the efforts of countless members, we have done our part to slow the spread of the disease, rallied to address the unique effects the crisis has on blind people, and found innovative ways to continue our work and grow our movement during this difficult and anxious time. As the seriousness and scope of the coronavirus pandemic became apparent in mid-March, the National Federation of the Blind quickly took action to do our part in slowing the spread of COVID-19, Although we had originally proposed cautious guidelines for holding traditional meetings as late as March 11, it became clear the next day that our initial measures needed to evolve. On that day, March 12, 2020, Maryland's governor and others across the nation closed schools and issued further restrictions on public gatherings. So on March 13, the board of directors met and issued a directive that all in-person federation meetings at the national, affiliate, and local level be immediately canceled or postponed. This includes state conventions, local chapter meetings, division meetings, fundraisers, and other events. 
Originally planned to be in effect until Easter, this directive was later extended to May 31, or whenever federal, state, and or local social distancing restrictions are lifted, whichever is later. The following week, a third of the staff of the NFB Jernigan Institute was shifted to emergency telework, both to accommodate specific health and personal needs, and to prepare should further restrictions require our headquarters to be shut down entirely. On March 23, Maryland Governor Larry J. Hogan issued an order that, in President Riccobono's judgment, required us to close the NFB Jernigan Institute at 5 p.m. that day. As mentioned, however, the infrastructure had already been put in place for most staff to work remotely, so, with a few exceptions, the work of the national staff began again the next morning and has continued ever since. As always, this work follows the direction of our national elected leaders and serves the needs of our affiliates, chapters, and members across our movement. It was clear from the outset that one of the most critical needs during this crisis would be timely and accessible information about the COVID-19 pandemic. Communications staff at the Jernigan Institute quickly put together a list of resources, both from within and outside the Federation. That list is still being updated and is available at www.nfb.org COVID-19. NFB Newsline was also ramped up to meet the emergency. Blind people in all 50 states, D.C., and Puerto Rico can access current outbreak statistics and breaking news articles about the pandemic, regardless of whether NFB Newsline is sponsored in their area. While national-level information and breaking news are critical, most decisions in response to the pandemic are being made at the state and local level. Accordingly, affiliates also began immediately developing and distributing their own collections of resources for publication on their websites and disseminating to every blind person they can find. In addition to identifying local and statewide information and resources, our affiliates are directly assisting blind people with critical needs like finding volunteers to drive them to medical appointments or to deliver groceries or prescriptions. Our nationwide network has never been more critical to meeting the needs of blind people, especially those who are vulnerable due to age, underlying health conditions, or physical isolation exacerbated by the limited availability of public transportation and ride-sharing options. Therefore, as previously mentioned, our imperative is to find and help as many blind people as possible without regard to their membership in the Federation. Our Utah affiliate developed a list of resources and set up a conference call to discuss strategic action, including the Utah Council of the Blind and others in the effort. The National Federation of the Blind of Colorado worked with the Colorado Center for the Blind to set up a hotline for all blind Coloradans who have questions or need assistance. The Texas affiliate is working with Lions Clubs in rural areas of that vast state to recruit volunteers who will help get groceries, medicine, and other critical supplies to blind people who need them. The National Federation of the Blind of Maryland started a coronavirus fund to help unemployed blind people get essential supplies. These are just a few examples of the actions our affiliates are taking to address the needs of blind people across our nation in this time of need. Our advocacy and policy team is closely monitoring federal legislation that is intended to relieve the economic distress that the pandemic is causing. This legislation will of course benefit blind people in many ways, but it may harm us, intentionally or unintentionally, in others. For example, an early legislative alert called our members to action to stop a Senate proposal that the requirements of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, be completely waived during the crisis. As a result of members contacting their senators, the waiver language was watered down to require only a study by the Secretary of Education to recommend whether any limited waivers should be authorized. We will continue to monitor developments in this area. We are also urging Congress to adopt provisions that will specifically help blind people deal with the setbacks the pandemic is causing. 
The Randolph-Shepard vendors, for example, will suffer ever-increasing hardship if Congress does not take action to support them. So our National Association of Blind Merchants initiated a letter-writing campaign to ask Congress for an appropriation to support the Randolph-Shepard program. In addition, we are pushing for the incorporation of our Access Technology Affordability Act into COVID-19 relief legislation so that blind people can acquire the technology they may need in order to work from home or change jobs. We signed on to a cross-disability letter urging healthcare providers to avoid using low expectations and unfounded misconceptions about the lives of people with disabilities in making critical care decisions. More information about public policy as it affects blind people during the outbreak is available at nfb.org COVID-19. In addition to these nationwide efforts, our affiliates are working closely with state rehabilitation agencies, departments of transportation, health and safety agencies, and the like to ensure that blind people in their jurisdictions have access to the services and supports they need. Online accessibility is always a primary focus of our activities, but it is especially important during this time of social distancing. Public schools, colleges, and universities have closed their physical facilities and moved to online learning. We know that access to course management platforms, accessible textbooks, and other materials is uneven to say the very least. To combat this problem, we immediately launched an initiative called Hashtag Accessible Now to identify problems and to urge schools at all levels to be proactive in meeting the needs of blind students. One of the first components of this initiative was a Twitter chat that brought together advocates, teachers, and blind students to discuss ways to improve accessibility and accommodate students during the crisis. An email address, accessiblenow at nfb.org, has been set up so that blind people can inform us of barriers in education and beyond. Other accessibility issues that blind people are facing include difficulty in applying for unemployment benefits, small business assistance, and other services that states are offering in order to mitigate the devastating economic effects of mass business closures. State and local COVID-19 response directives and other information may also be inaccessible. The National Federation of the Blind is combating these problems at all levels. While COVID-19 brings many challenges, it also presents opportunities to reach out to more blind people. Early in our response efforts, President Riccobono announced that any affiliate that wanted one would be given access to a Zoom Pro account. Zoom is a powerful and popular audio and video conferencing service that has been used at the NFB Jernigan Institute for some time now. It is especially useful to our movement because it is highly accessible. Many affiliates and divisions are taking full advantage of Zoom, not only for the conduct of virtual NFB business meetings, but also to hold trainings, seminars, philosophy discussions, or just virtual social gatherings. With coordination and leadership from the NFB Jernigan Institute, a distance education plan has been developed to provide blind children and their parents with home-based activities covering Braille, independent living, STEM subjects, arts and crafts, and more. This will help replace some of the one-on-one instruction that blind children are not receiving from teachers of blind students while schools are closed. The Access Technology team will offer weekly accessibility boutiques to train information technology workers and others on accessibility principles, expanding a program of our Center for Excellence in Non-Visual Access that until now primarily benefited people living and working in the Baltimore area. All of these activities are open to blind people, parents of blind children, and other interested individuals, whether or not they are members. We are intentionally connecting with people we did not know previously and who may never have attended a Federation event due to transportation issues, health concerns, or other factors. It seems highly likely that we will see substantial growth in our organization. It is often said that a crisis is a time of challenge, but also one of hope and opportunity. 
No doubt, blind people and the National Federation of the Blind will face additional challenges because of COVID-19. In addition to those mentioned above, for example, we will need to be particularly mindful of our financial situation because of the economic contraction that is occurring and the monetary contributions of those who can make them will be more critical than ever. At the same time, we are expanding our existing capabilities, learning new ways of doing things, and reaching new potential members and partners. As we plan our first Everall virtual convention, all of these processes will continue. There is every reason to believe that, as we have in the past, we will emerge from this crisis stronger and more resilient than ever. Let's connect and protect blind people during the time of the coronavirus, and let's go build the Federation. A Timely Gift from a Talented and Generous Author by Jonathan Mosen There is a photo on the page, the caption, Jonathan Mosen. From the editor, Jonathan Mosen is a well-known name. He has had articles in the Braille Monitor with some frequency, has had a lot of visibility in his work with Humanware, Vispero, and Ira, and is appreciated for several books he has written that make the iPhone and other devices much more useful to those not technically suited to read a manual or lengthy help file. Jonathan is without a doubt an activist, and he intends to do good in the world. Here is just one manifestation of the spirit that drives this man's life work. Kiora, bracket, be safe, close bracket, everyone, from beautiful Wellington, New Zealand. As many of you know, I'm now CEO of a national organization here in New Zealand. I'm no longer developing Mosin Consulting projects, but I keep titles available as long as they remain relevant. Occasionally, I check in to see what we have sold through our automated system. Having just done this, I have noticed a sharp increase in the number of people buying my audiobook on Zoom Cloud Meetings, Meet Me Accessibly, which is a three-hour description of how to use Zoom on a range of platforms with a screen reader. There has been a very sharp spike in sales in just the last few days. Clearly, this is because more people are already working from home or are preparing to do so. I do not feel comfortable profiting from a need people have during a crisis that is unprecedented in living memory. If people need access to the material at a time like this, I can afford to give it away, especially since Mosin Consulting is no longer my primary means of making a living. I have therefore refunded in full everyone who has purchased Meet Me Accessibly during March and made it free on the website. You are welcome to download it free and distribute it anywhere you want. The only thing I ask is that you please not change any of the files and that it be distributed in full. Download it free from http colon slash slash mosin.org slash zoom. I hope this helps in some small way during a very tough time for many. There is no sugarcoating the fact that we are living through a very difficult period in history. But if we follow quality advice, including regular handwashing and levels of isolation appropriate for the degree of outbreak in our country, we'll get through it. Let's all do our best to stay safe, be mindful of the safety of others, and be kind. Take care, Jonathan. Counseling and Coronavirus, A Perspective on Well-Being by Candace Chapman and Jeannie Massey Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Candace Chapman. Photo 2, the caption, Jeannie Massey. From the editor, Much of what we read today about the coronavirus quite correctly focuses on what we can do to stay physically safe. On the hierarchy of needs, that has to be placed at the top. But we also know that this kind of social isolation is not normal, and in order to be mentally healthy as well as physically okay, we need to think about strategies to keep us feeling as well as we can. This article comes from two wonderful counselors. Candace Chapman is a former scholarship winner and now serves on the scholarship committee. She is close to completing her doctorate in counseling. Jeannie Massey is also working on her doctorate. 
Both of these women are actively involved in practicing, their sessions occurring virtually instead of physically. Although this is written in first person, as they request, keep in mind that both of them concur in the opinions expressed. Here is what they say. Just when you think you've got life all figured out, coronavirus comes along and makes a mockery of your carefully laid plans. Seriously, who could have seen a global pandemic coming? Certainly not me. However, if being a member of a helping profession has taught me anything about life, it's that if you aren't facing one challenge, you're facing another. This knowledge gives me comfort, because just as I've overcome other challenges, I stand a good chance to overcome this one. Just as in any other challenging time in my life, I'm relying upon the skills and strategies that I practice myself and with my clients to stay positive, healthy, and relatively happy. I hope that by sharing a few of these things with you, you find some peace and comfort in these strange days. After all, this is one of the most universal challenges that I can recall. Establish a routine. I know, I know, you're probably reading this going, thank you, next. Go with me here. People need structure in their lives, some more than others. In times of difficulty and uncertainty, having structure can often lead to peace of mind. Whether you're working from home or completing online classes or trying to get out of your Netflix slump, establishing a routine can be a way to preserve your mental health. I've been working from home, so in order to maintain motivation, I go to work. This simply means I get up in the morning and prepare for my day as if I'm going to commute to a building other than my home. So I get up, complete my morning routine, and then go to the space that I have designated in my home as work. I do everything in that space that I would do on a regular basis. Whatever your current activities include, try designating spaces that mimic life before corona. Replicating your regular routine will inject a sense of normalcy that people, myself included, can appreciate. Maintaining your normal routines can help keep depression and anxiety at bay. You may find that you have a heightened sense of depression, anxiety, or both during this uncertain time. This is absolutely normal. Make sure that you are adding in more contact with friends and family in whatever ways that you can. Establishing this as a part of your routine can make life a lot better. If you find yourself feeling more depressed or anxious than usual, try limiting the amount of media that you take in. There is news, but much of it is constantly rehashing. If you hear this enough, or it is predominantly what you hear, the world feels like it is limited only to the virus. Don't let yourself be fooled and don't be hooked into this single track in your thinking and feelings. Exercise Ah, I see you're more on board with this one. Whether you like it or not, exercise is beneficial not only for your physical health, but also for your mental health. You feel good, your mind is clear, and energy is available in heaps. The other great thing about exercise is that it comes in so many different forms, whether it's taking a safe, socially distant walk around your neighborhood, or finding a routine online that you like and burning calories in your living room. Exercise is a good way to stay healthy in both mind and body. I have personally enjoyed following an exercise routine from one of my favorite professional dancers on Instagram. I encourage you to get creative and search out something that makes exercise enjoyable. One other thing to keep in mind, exercising outside comes with the added bonus of vitamin D, which is also good for solid health and positive mood. Sunshine is good for the soul. Meditation and Mindfulness Activities I have to admit, this is one of my personal favorites when it comes to staying calm and healthy, no matter what the circumstance. It's easy enough to find a nice meditation app to follow along with, or you can find a guide online and create your own. As with apps, there are tons of guides available on the web, and just like with the exercise routine, find one that works for you. Another great thing about meditation is that you can combine it with lots of other activities that are also good for overall well-being. I have found that yoga and meditation is one of the most pleasant, relaxing self-care combinations I have in my self-care toolkit. Some of the more well-known apps that focus on mindfulness and meditation are Headspace, 
Sanvelo, and Stop, Breathe, and Think. When checking out YouTube or internet searches for mindfulness or meditation, be patient. You may not particularly enjoy every video you encounter. However, keep looking until you find one that you will use and that you enjoy. Aromatherapy Play-Doh This activity is one that I first came across while preparing a presentation on effective self-care activities for counselors. This activity can use homemade Play-Doh or the kind you can purchase at the store. Once you've either purchased your Play-Doh or made some, find your favorite essential oils, combine the scents you like, and add a few drops to the Play-Doh. This aromatherapy Play-Doh is the gift that keeps on giving. When you squeeze the Play-Doh, it acts in a similar way to a stress ball. The oils are activated and you get their effect through your sense of smell, and finally, you have the scents from your oil selections on your hands so that you can experience the positive effects long after you've stored your Play-Doh. Eat with intentionality. Since we are somewhat stuck at home, it might be easy to just graze through meals without thinking about eating regularly. Try to pay attention to what and when you are eating. Making sure that you are getting good nutrition not only helps your brain work better, but it also helps with emotional regulation. Eat a variety of foods including sources of protein, vegetables, fruits, and grains. I'm not saying don't add in a cookie or brownie occasionally, because hey, they're delicious. But should be supplemental rather than the bulk of your intake for any given day. Sleep. I know you are probably thinking, really? And the response is, absolutely. Making a good sleep schedule is important to brain health and emotional regulation. Our brains actually rid themselves of neurotoxins while we sleep so that we can better function the next day. While many of us are out of our normal routines, it is really important to get the right amount of sleep and to establish a routine around sleep. That means getting up at approximately the same time each day and going to bed at approximately the same time each night. Try to unplug from your phone, tablet, television, or other activities that are stimulating about 30 minutes before you go to bed. If you are having trouble getting to sleep, the meditation and relaxation exercises that you have already checked out will come in handy here. There are tons of resources available to help you through this time of uncertainty and confusion, and this is by no means comprehensive. I simply have shared some of the most relevant things in my life and the lives of those with whom I work. I'll leave you with one final thought. You are not alone in this struggle. It's important to always remember that we are in this together. Our Social Committee for Staff is Still Hard at Work by the Social Committee From the Editor The staff at the National Federation of the Blind Jernigan Institute is a positive, hard-working group. Part of staying positive is to make an intentional effort to bolster staff morale. This is the reason we have a social committee, and when the first Thursday came around and all of us found ourselves working from home, the social committee still found a way to reach out and encourage. Here is what they sent to the staff on March 26. Good afternoon, cooped-up colleagues. This is a community service message from your social committee. Things you should not be doing during the coronavirus pandemic. Do not decide to feng shui your living room. You could pull your back out. Do not kiss your peapod driver because he found you some toilet paper. Do not take up cooking now. Your family will thank you later. Do not cut your own hair. Do not chase your cat because you want cuddle time. You will really regret it. Do not tell your almost 80-year-old mother that you are going to start getting her groceries. She looks confused, shocked, and then mad, all in a span of five seconds. Then she says, Girl, have you completely lost your mind? You most certainly will not be doing that. True story. We hope that you have enjoyed this dose of levity and information courtesy of the social committee. We want you all to know that we are here for you if you need us. Just reach out. The NFB of Colorado Takes the Distancing Out of Social Distancing by Jessica Beecham. There is a photo on the page. The caption, Jessica Beecham. From the editor, 
Some people have it all, brains, talent, physical attractiveness, and the ability to make a room light up whenever they enter. All of this could be said about Jessica, but the thing I admire most is that none of this makes any difference in the way that she approaches each and every person she meets. She is not falsely modest, but neither is she full of herself. She is a winner, and for those of us who get the opportunity to be around her, she makes us feel like winners as well. Her most recent assignment is taking charge of coordinating the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado to take the distance out of social distancing and replace isolation with stimulation. Here is the article she has written about the efforts her affiliate has made, and let us all be thankful for what they are doing and for what other affiliates around the country are doing as well. In March, COVID-19, which had been rearing its ugly head in the media for weeks, suddenly struck society hard and fast. Many states began seeing their first positive COVID-19 cases. Within the span of just over a week, the sizes of recommended group gatherings went from 50 to 10 to 5 to shelter in place and see only those who live in your home. Many of us were deemed non-essential and were not allowed to attend work or had to switch gears and adopt a work-from-home model. Others, we who were deemed essential, went to work in fear that we would contract this deadly virus or potentially carry it home to our vulnerable family members. Students and teachers alike scrambled to switch to virtual learning platforms. Medical professionals scurried to secure testing supplies, ventilators, and protective gear. Maybe most notably, stores across the nation hustled to keep up with the mysteriously increasing demand for toilet paper. While the whole country was taken by storm, members of the National Federation of the Blind quickly began to realize that this crisis would affect our members in unique ways. Grocery stores began to refuse to provide shopping assistance due to lack of staff. Taking public transit made adhering to social distancing guidance increasingly more difficult. Medication and grocery deliveries were significantly delayed. People who didn't get grocery deliveries were only receiving a portion of the items they actually asked for. Students struggled with inaccessible learning platforms. Blind people had to be concerned with whether we could get tested for COVID-19 at drive-up facilities. Even more concerning was the idea that if we fell ill and ended up hospitalized, would our medical needs be deprioritized because of our blindness? In true Federation fashion, the National Federation of the Blind stepped up and swiftly began addressing these issues. While we do not claim to have most or all of the answers, the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado has been working hard to do our part. Starting with the goal of continuing to serve blind people throughout the state to the best of our ability, we developed a two-pronged strategy. The first prong was to build a network to assist blind Coloradans with meeting essential needs like getting groceries, picking up prescriptions, and finding rides to critical destinations. We recruited volunteers through social media, leadership groups, and lines across the state. We then began matching blind people with volunteers through our hotline, 303-778-1130, extension 219, and the email address, assistance at nfbco.org. We used volunteers from affiliate, chapter, and division leadership to call members, as well as people on the free white cane and slate and stylus lists, just to check in and make sure that their needs were being met. So far, we have gotten tremendous feedback all around. When asked to pick up groceries for an individual with type 2 diabetes who felt unsafe going to the store, one volunteer responded, Thank you so much for thinking of me. Another volunteer wrote a letter to his leadership group after giving one of our members a ride to dialysis to say how rewarding it was to get out and help others during this time. He urged other members of the group to register as volunteers. One of our members said, I was so stressed out about how I was going to get my groceries. I did not know what to do. I almost cried with relief when I was matched with a volunteer. Another individual shared that when she had to move suddenly and unexpectedly, that it would have been way too overwhelming for her to manage without the assistance of one of our volunteers. Marie Neatfield, who spearheaded the hotline, said that it has been a win-win situation. 
We have been able to assist blind people in getting the critical help that they need, and our volunteers have felt more centered through serving others during this time when we all feel so helpless and vulnerable. Our second goal was to unite our members around educational workshops to decrease the feelings of isolation, help blind people live the lives we want, and to seize this unique and unprecedented opportunity to build the National Federation of the Blind. Each evening at 5 p.m. Mountain Time, we host an educational workshop. Topics have run the gamut from weekly staples like Workout Wednesday and Philosophy Friday to other items of interest including accessible gaming, guide dogs, tech toys, the good, the bad, and the ugly, essential oils 101, and much more. In one of our Philosophy Friday calls, President Mark Riccobono shared his thoughts on what it meant to live the life you want. When one individual shared that he tried and tried and never was able to get his foot in the door to find a job and expressed that for him, living the life he wants would be financial freedom, President Riccobono very eloquently explained that in part, our message is aspirational. Even if things are not perfect now, we work hard to make them better for the next generation of blind people. In another call, we discussed cited privilege. Long-time federationists and non-members alike discussed cited privilege and how this impacts our movement. Longtime federationist Jim Gashel says he is violently opposed to the use of this terminology. He feels that it takes away from the idea of blindness as a characteristic. At the same time, others shared that the idea of cited privilege was powerful in helping them express something they have felt and experienced, but had not worded quite the same way. We invited people from across the country to join us for these calls. Before each workshop begins, all participants are unmuted, and we have a lot of fun getting to know one another. Scott Labar, president of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado, said, While we are practicing physical distancing in Colorado, we are certainly not practicing social distancing. The Colorado affiliate is using this opportunity to grow closer than ever. Our efforts are allowing us to find new blind people, and the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado is grateful for this opportunity to serve. To explore their online offering, send your request and your email address to jbbeecham at gmail.com. Math That Feels Good, Enabling Sighted and Blind People to Share the Mathematical Experience by Al Manecki. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Al Manecki. From the editor, Al Manecki is a living legend. He has gone where few blind people have gone before, into the field of mathematics, and beyond this, he thinks it is a field in which more blind people should be involved. He knows technology and the software sighted people use to perform all of the mathematical functions required to be a skilled mathematician. He continuously presses the National Federation of the Blind to be a leading force in the incremental steps required to give us full access to the tools of science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. He is quick to credit the efforts of others in the work that he does, and this you will clearly see in his article. Here it is. Author's Note I want to begin this article by acknowledging the valuable assistance of fellow team member Karen Hurstein, who verified most of the facts and citations given here. I also want to thank the other members of the Nemeth Braille Translation Team, Martha Siegel, Alexei S. Kolesnikov, Rob Beezer, and Volker Sorge for reviewing the first draft and making suggestions. I also want to thank David Farmer, Director of Programs, and the American Institute of Mathematics for its support and assistance with our work on Nemeth Braille Translation. As the author of this article, I assume full responsibility for any errors, misrepresentations, and oversights. Readers who wish to contact me may do so by email apmaneki at earthlink.net. Almanecki. The Beginning The press release issued by the American Institute of Mathematics, AIM, on January 16, 2020, said in part, 
Mathematics and science Braille textbooks are expensive and require an enormous effort to produce, until now. A team of researchers has developed a method for easily creating textbooks in Braille, with an initial focus on mathematics textbooks. The new process is made possible by a new authoring system which serves as a universal translator for textbook formats, combined with enhancements to the standard method for putting mathematics in a web page. Basing the new work on established systems will ensure that the production of Braille textbooks will become easy, inexpensive, and widespread. This press release was issued in conjunction with the annual Joint Mathematics Meeting, JMM, of the American Mathematical Society, AMS, Mathematical Association of America, MAA, and several other professional mathematics organizations. There was a special session at this year's JMM held in Denver on open educational resources. A one-hour portion of this session was devoted to talks by me and two of our team members on the progress we have made so far. We will have more to say about AIM later in this article. The work described in this press release has been taking place quietly but with considerable NFB involvement since 2017. Given the considerable progress that has been made to date, the overwhelmingly positive response to this press release and to our JMM talks from both the mathematics and the blind communities, this is the right moment to inform readers of this magazine about this effort. Let me emphasize here that this is still too early for anyone to expect that mathematics textbooks can be produced on demand and delivered promptly. For a very long time, the development of an easy, inexpensive, and widely used piece of software to convert printed mathematics texts into Nemeth Braille has been considered the holy grail of providing mathematics textbooks to blind students. Mark Maurer, the immediate past president, told me that years ago, he asked Abraham Nemeth and Tim Cranmer to work on automated Nemeth Braille translation software. This was to no avail. Both leading technology giants of that day did not take up Dr. Maurer's request. Anyone who has experienced the pleasure of learning mathematics from a hard-copy Braille text can tell you how much simpler the learning process and self-discovery can be. By keeping the fingers of one hand on an initial calculation and by keeping the fingers of the other hand on a concluding calculation, one can mull over the sequence of calculations that leads from the first one to the final one. In the case of logical arguments, one can mull over the sequence of logical steps that would lead from an initial proposition to a conclusion. To save textbook space and to challenge readers' mathematical abilities, textbook authors will frequently leave out this immediate material. Hard copy format of a mathematical text gives the reader the necessary time to think about the material and fill in the details left by the author to the readers. In the case of tactile diagrams, a reader may use both hands to explore the patterns and the relationships displayed by the entire diagram. This type of exploration is simply not possible when a diagram is described verbally. A verbal rendering of a diagram may introduce the describer's own interpretations of that diagram, depriving the listener of the opportunity for self-discovery of that diagram's content. This is not to say that the use of refreshable Braille displays has no place in mathematics. We will have more to say about refreshable Braille displays later in this article. The Backstory Our story begins with Natalie Shaheen, the Project Director for the National Federation of the Blind's Spatial Ability and Blind Engineering Research Project, and the Program Director for the associated NFBEQ summer programs, undertaking her doctoral studies at Towson University under Dr. Jonathan Lazar. As Martha Siegel, Professor Emerita, Department of Mathematics, Towson University, tells it, Shaheen and Lazar discussed the difficulties and delays in obtaining a Braille textbook for a required statistics course. This tale of woe is well known to many of us. Lazar suggested that Shaheen take this matter up with Siegel. The outcome of this conversation was an enraged Dr. Martha Siegel, determined to do something about this. At this point in early 2017, Siegel and I had an extensive conversation and began to map out a strategy. Our first collaboration was Guidelines for Collegiate Faculty to Teach Mathematics to Blind and Visually Impaired Students, 
which appeared in the summer 2017 issue of Future Reflections, the NFB's quarterly publication for parents of blind children. See Braille Monitor show notes page for link. Siegel is the ideal spokesperson to promote our quest for the holy grail of automated Braille translation software. She has boundless energy and is totally committed to our Braille project. Siegel served as the editor of Mathematics Magazine from 1991 to 1996 and as secretary of the Mathematical Association of America, MAA, from 1996 to 2010. She was a faculty member in the Mathematics Department of Towson University from 1971 until 2015 when she became Professor Emerita. From her extensive service, she has many contacts in the mathematics community. The Team and the Method From the beginning, Siegel has held a firm mental image of how Braille translation software might work. She realized that Braille translation from all renditions of LaTeX and other presentation software languages would be virtually impossible because we cannot anticipate the form and structure of all presentation languages. Despite the overabundance of just LaTeX versions alone, Siegel's plan was to develop a standard version of LaTeX to provide the framework for Braille translation software. She insisted that authors could be persuaded to write their textbooks in this standardized LaTeX version, enabling straightforward Braille translations. In the summer of 2018, Siegel recruited Alexei Kolesnikov, a colleague at Towson University. Although he had no prior experience with Braille translation, he was very familiar with LaTeX. He realized, along with Martha and me, that converting the words is easy. Braille is just another alphabet. The hard part is converting the structure of the book in a non-visual way, converting the mathematics formulas, and converting the graphs and diagrams. Given the amazing technology available today, we thought it would be easy to piece together existing tools into an automated process, Kolesnikov said later. Our approach to developing Braille translation software depended on breaking up the overall problem into three distinct problems, then solving each piece separately. First, the overall structure. A typical mathematics textbook uses visual clues to indicate chapters, sections, captions, and other landmarks. In Braille, all the letters are the same size and shape, so these structural elements are described with special symbols. Second, accurately conveying complicated mathematical formulas. In Braille, mathematics formulas are represented using the Nemeth Braille Code. The existence of the Nemeth Braille Code simplifies the problem of automated Braille translation for us, i.e., when the translation software encounters a mathematical expression or formula, simply convert it into its Nemeth equivalent. Third, providing a non-visual tactile way to represent graphs and diagrams. The non-visual representation of graphs and diagrams remains a unique challenge. Many of the usual tools of presenting information using color, thickness of a line, shading, etc. are not available in tactile graphics. The tips of our fingers have a much lower resolution than our eyes, so the size of the image must be bigger, yet still fit on the Braille page. The labels that include a picture must be translated to Braille and placed so that they do not interfere with the drawn lines. Diagrams that show three-dimensional shapes are particularly hard to read in a tactile format. Our plan to develop a standardized version of LaTeX began to change when Siegel introduced us to the American Institute of Mathematics, AIM, in January 2019 at the JMM, which was held in Baltimore. AIM is an organization devoted to advancing mathematical knowledge through collaboration, to broadening participation in the mathematical endeavors, and to increasing the awareness of the contributions of the mathematical sciences to society. Since 2002, AIM has been part of the National Science Foundation, NSF, Mathematical Sciences Institute's program. One of the participants from AIM was Rob Beezer, a mathematics professor at the University of Puget Sound in Washington State. His participation was most fortunate for us. He had already developed an authoring tool which he called Pretext, open-source software that contains all the properties of the standardized version of LaTeX that we were hoping to develop. 
In August 2018, Siegel and Kolesnikov initiated a call with Beezer and David Farmer from AIM about pretext, but it was the 2019 JMM where Beezer spoke with Volker Sorge about Braille. More on Volker Sorge later in this article. Later that day, Siegel, Kolesnikov, Volker, Beezer, Farmer, Herstein, and I gathered at a table where we were introduced to Brian Conry, AIM's director. Looking back, it would be fair to say that this is when our Nemeth Braille team was formed and our collaboration with AIM was solidified. Beezer sees automated Braille translation software as a natural extension of a dream he has been pursuing for several years. We have been developing a system for writing textbooks which automatically produces print versions as well as online, EPUB, Jupyter, and other formats. Our mantra is, write once, read everywhere. Beezer added Braille as an output format in his system when we decided to use Pretext as our standardized file format and authoring tool. According to Beezer's scheme, we may consider all the Braille codes, Nemeth, Music, etc., as just another presentation language on par with EPUB, Jupyter, etc. What a novel view of Braille! All the elements of the first problem will be handled through Pretext. The non-mathematical elements in a Pretext file may be transferred as inputs to Liblui, an open-source Braille translator and back-translator. The output BRF file for the translated mathematics textbook is created by Liblui. The codes in the Pretext file identify the mathematical elements for us. These elements are then inserted into a Nemeth Braille translator, and the translated Nemeth code is transferred into its proper positions in the BRF file. For our Nemeth Braille translator, we are using MathJax, a standard, open-source package for displaying mathematics formulas on web pages. When we met Volker Sorge, a reader in scientific document analysis in the School of Computer Science at the University of Birmingham, England, he had already extended MathJax to produce accessible mathematics content on the web through verbal screen readers. This MathJax accessibility was initially introduced as part of a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with support from AMS and the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, SIAM. Sorge was added to our team when he agreed to extend MathJax accessibility to include electronic Braille devices and hard-copy Braille printers. Sorge noted, We have made great progress in having MathJax produce accessible mathematics content on the web, so the conversion to Braille was a natural extension of that work. Sorge is a member of the MathJax Consortium and the sole developer of Speech Rule Engine, the system that is the core of the Nemeth translation and provides accessibility features in MathJax and other online tools. When I inquired about the connection between AIM and MathJax, I got three responses from Sorge, Farmer, and Siegel. Here are their direct quotations. According to Sorge, we, i.e. MathJax and Alex Jordan, Mathematics Department, Portland Community College, organized an AIM workshop on mathematics accessibility on the web a few years ago. That's where Rob and I started experimenting with Braille translation. But I assume most people were aware of MathJax before that, as it is the main solution to transform and render math on the web. According to Farmer, I was going to say it as, AIM is not involved with MathJax, but AIM is involved with Volker because of the workshop he co-organized in May 2018. According to Siegel, and we are involved with AIM, and therefore MathJax, because I saw that AIM had sponsored the workshop on web accessibility for the blind, and I contacted Brian Conry. MAA has been recommending MathJax for a while. Currently, we have no solutions to the third problem, i.e., the automated generation of tactile graphs and diagrams. At best, graphs and diagrams may be generated from PDF files and scaled to size to fit a standard 11-inch by 11.5-inch braille sheet. Individual graphs and diagrams, once they have been embossed, are then manually inserted into the proper positions in a Braille volume that has already been generated from the BRF file. Alexei Kolesnikov has done much of the work and gained valuable experience in producing tactile graphs and diagrams. 
he has used a TigerMax Braille embosser to produce them. Converting the print labels into Braille labels also requires an extra level of attention to details. All these difficulties will have to be taken into consideration for us to automate textbook production completely. The Grant The initial work for automated Nemeth Braille translation was funded by a grant issued in 2019 to Towson University from the American Action Fund for Blind Children and Adults. Under this grant, we began to develop some of the methods for automated translation as stated in the three problem areas. Kolesnikov downloaded a set of Calculus II lecture notes with the belief that if we could translate these notes, we would be able to translate anything at an equivalent or lower class level. Our translation of the chapter on double integrals of functions over regions in these lecture notes revealed several problems with the structure elements of pretext that were intended for Braille translation and the Nemeth translation from MathJax. After several iterations of proofreading by Hurstein and myself, improvements and corrections were made to pretext, and some improvements were made to the MathJax Nemeth translator. I think we have the pretext translation software working quite well, but we don't have all the features that we need in Speech Rule Engine and MathJax. To avoid the difficulties inherent in embossing three-dimensional diagrams, we decided not to attempt a complete translation of these Calculus II lecture notes. However, we gained valuable experience in the art and craft of automated Braille translation. To complete work on the current grant, we began a Braille translation of the open-source textbook Abstract Algebra, Theory and Applications, AATA, by Thomas W. Judson, written initially in pretext. In the standard mathematic curriculum, abstract algebra is taught at a comparable level to or a slightly higher level than calculus too. As of this writing, we have brailled the first five chapters, and Hurstein and I are now proofreading them. Diagrams have been produced for these five chapters. The diagrams are accurate, but work is still needed to automate the process of producing braille labels and placing these labels in their proper positions, and if necessary, providing additional text explaining what is in the diagram. For the purposes of demonstration, we brought a Braille copy of Chapter 2 with no diagrams and a set of embossed diagrams from Chapter 1, both items containing imperfections, of Judson's book to the JMM. The other two speakers from our team were Sorge and Kolesnikov. The overall response to our three presentations was most enthusiastic. Members of the audience went away with a better understanding of pretext, Nemeth Braille, and the importance of hard copy Braille textbooks for blind and visually impaired students. They sympathized with and supported the need for pretext. However, in addition to the target audience at JMM, we must develop a greater appreciation for pretext and Nemeth in the overall mathematics community. This was the very reason for AIM's press release at this time. The challenges of getting more textbooks authored in pretext are immense. There is the matter of inertia. Authors are accustomed to doing what they have always done. Too often they don't want to learn anything new. Textbook publishers must also buy into pretext so that they will be willing to mass-produce books from pretext files. Now what? Despite the overwhelming difficulties inherent in the pretext, LibLouis, MathJax PLM approach to automated translation, this is our best strategy for getting Braille books produced rapidly. Eventually, this approach can be made to work for books in all scholarly fields, especially those involving heavy use of footnotes. While direct Braille translations from presentation languages, such as latex, may be desirable, there seems to be the universal belief that Braille translation from any presentation language is impractical. Since all textbooks written in any presentation language contain so much code that is irrelevant to Braille, the process of extracting the relevant material for Braille is daunting. For this reason, there have been virtually no successful efforts at translation from presentation language files. In today's learning and research environment, downloading and uploading of mathematical content to the web is absolutely essential. 
Although many limitations are imposed using one-line refreshable Braille displays, these are the only devices we have for web communications. We will use them until better refreshable Braille displays become available. We must continue to insist that all mathematical materials on the web are non-visually accessible. In order to simplify the PLM translation software for the average blind or sighted user, we must improve all the software components so that file transfers and specification of parameters are easy to perform and foolproof. We must also write good documentation to guarantee ease of use. Of course, the procedures and use of PLM translation software will be non-visually accessible. I don't know when all of this will be finished. At present, if anyone wishes to write a mathematics book in pretext and to translate it into Nemeth Braille, it would be best to get in touch with Rob Beezer, email b-e-e-z-e-r at ups.edu. For the remainder of this year, we hope to perfect our techniques in order to produce an error-free Nemeth Braille copy of AATA with diagrams. Also on the calendar this year, there will be a one-week workshop on Braille translation sponsored by AIM from August 3 through 7. At this workshop, we will reconsider all aspects of PLM translation software. We will pay special attention to the problem of automating tactile graphics. Ultimately, PLM translation software should be good enough so that any book that is translated into Nemeth Braille from it will pass the proofreading of a certified Nemeth proofreader. You can be sure that the NFB's technical and mathematical expertise will be well represented at this workshop. My Take This work on PLM translation software has been a most pleasant experience for me. It has brought back many of the memories of my student days, the struggles and the triumphs of mastering mathematical concepts without benefit of hard-copy Braille textbooks. The work we are doing now will make life easier for the next generation of blind students. Despite the difficulties I faced, compared to the advantages that the upcoming students will have, there is no doubt in my mind. I would do it all over again just the way I did it. My accomplishments in mathematics are all the proof I need. I have been an NFB member for almost 50 years. Over this half-century, we have accomplished enormous successes because of both our collective and individual actions. Just remember that PLM translation software would never have been started if Natalie Shaheen hadn't taken the individual action of paying a visit to Martha Siegel. My heart and soul are inextricably tied to NFB. We are the only game in town. Steve Benson Dies by Barbara Pierce There is a photo on the page, the caption, Barbara Pierce. From the editor, it is not easy to be a part of publishing a tribute to Stephen Benson, in part because of how long we served together on the national board and as state presidents, and in part because Steve's talents and personality are not easily captured in one article. I think that our former editor Barbara Pierce's article is a beautiful attempt. Since Steve had more than 20 articles published in the Braille Monitor, I found it difficult to choose the one to run with this tribute. Readers are encouraged to search back issues to enjoy the writing, experience, and perspectives of our departed friend. Here's what Barbara Pierce has to say. I must have met Steve Benson in 1975 when I attended my first national convention. He was the host affiliate president, so he was a busy man at that convention, and I really don't remember meeting him. In fact, it seems as if I have always known Steve. At that time, he was teaching Braille at the Heinz Veterans Hospital, He had to walk a careful line as a Federation leader not to be seen to show preference for the NFB's philosophy. His solution was to live what he believed and offer friendship to his students. He also quietly passed along names of the veterans who were interested in the NFB to Federation leaders in their states. Steve was a wonderful traveler. He wrote a manual on cane mobility, and he made a point of traveling everywhere with his long white cane. I remember Dr. Jernigan telling me this after a meeting he had with Steve in which they were planning the 1988 National Convention, which was in Chicago. 
The Jernigans made arrangements to meet Steve outside the restaurant. Mrs. Jernigan spotted Steve striding along about a block and a busy intersection away. She reported to Dr. Jernigan that Steve came to the intersection just as the light changed so that he could cross the perpendicular stream of traffic without ever stopping. A blind walker can do this if he or she is listening ahead and gets clear cues that the parallel traffic is accelerating. Sighted people do this all the time, but one has to be a good and confident cane traveler to pull it off and make it look easy. Mrs. Jernigan reported the crossing to Dr. Jernigan, and he filed it away in his facts about Steve. We all had a list like that. David Andrews wrote to me with one of his memories that parallels my story about Steve's incredible mobility. Dave said, Among other things, Steve may have been the best totally blind traveler I ever walked with. He was very smooth and always knew where he was in relation to his environment. He and I were going to lunch in downtown Chicago one day. He said, let's go to such and such. I don't remember the restaurant, but being relatively new to Chicago, I just said sure. We walked down a long block and he stopped, turned in, and walked straight into the right door. I asked him how long it had been since he had been there, and he said, oh, about ten years. Steve was a fine Braille teacher and an avid Braille reader. When he worked for the Chicago Public Library, he hosted an interview program in which he interviewed authors. He loved that task. He wrote lots of press releases for the library, and he brought that skill to the Federation. I worked long and hard with Steve doing press for the NFB. He was charming and articulate in interviews, and he was always ready to pick up the slack and write when we needed articles. Steve was what my mother called a spiffy dresser. I could always count on Steve to appear impeccably dressed and groomed. He wrote several grooming articles to help parents of blind boys. These appeared in the Braille Monitor, but I have always been sorry that we did not put together the book for parents of blind children that I dreamed about doing. Several of the pieces that Steve wrote were scheduled for that book. When Steve fought his battle with lymphoma, he made a point of sitting down with each of the people in the Federation with whom he was close. He told us each how much we had added to his life and how much he loved us. These were very meaningful conversations. Steve was modeling for us how to build and nurture friendship. He kept his friends for a lifetime, and he taught us how to tend our friendships. Recent months have been difficult. Steve was necessarily living in the past, and in our conversations I could see him disassociating himself from politics and current events, which he loved. It makes me smile to picture Steve catching up with Dick Edlund, Betty Nicely, Don Caps, and Dr. Jernigan, and getting to know Dr. Tenbrook. Rest in peace and joy, my friend. Doing What's Necessary by Stephen O. Benson There is a photo on the page. The caption, Stephen O. Benson. From the editor. This is how Steve's article was originally introduced when it appeared in the Braille Monitor. Editor's Note. Sighted people are often curious about the simple modifications that blind people make in order to get on with ordinary life. Mostly, they are not ingenious or complex. The simpler the better is a good rule to follow, and blind youngsters are particularly clever at applying the principle to their play. Steve Benson, president of the NFB of Illinois and a member of the NFB Board of Directors, has struck up a friendship with one of his fellow commuters into downtown Chicago. He has passed along colonel books, which have been well-received, but the woman recently expressed eagerness to know how Steve has developed the little tricks that he uses every day. Steve began thinking back to childhood and the modifications he and his friends made that enabled him to join in neighborhood games. The following article was the result. Here it is. The Hawthorne was a fine old graystone, 12-flat building in Chicago's Lincoln Park area across the street from DePaul University. It boasted polished, dark hardwood millwork, oak parquet floors, and formal marble entrances. Sometime in the 1920s, it was converted to a 59-unit rooming house. It was there that my mother and I settled in 1943. 
I was just a year and a half old. Two significant things occurred at about that time. Doctors at Children's Memorial Hospital determined that I had retinitis pigmentosa, and my mother became manager of the Hawthorne. Since we lived where my mother worked, she was able to guide and mold her young son in ways which she could not have otherwise. The Hawthorne and its inhabitants had much to do with who I have become. When I entered first grade, I was unable to read standard print, so school officials placed me in what were then called sight-saving classes. I did not and could not fully understand the implications of that placement. I could not identify facial features. I could not follow the flight of a batted or thrown ball. I could not see a bird in a tree. I had no idea what blindness was. At some point the notion of blindness was raised, but I did not regard myself as blind, for I could see. Somewhere along the line it was suggested that I was half-blind, and that seemed okay. As I moved from second to third to fourth grade, my visual acuity diminished while the print I was expected to read became smaller. Reading became more and more difficult. I have very distinct memories of sitting at my desk, staring out the window, trying to puzzle out the print figures on the page in front of me. It was like reading gray print on gray paper. My teacher printed my math problems in large figures in India ink, and I still struggled. That was the middle of fourth grade, and it was another year before I was transferred to a school where I could learn to read and write Braille. The prevailing theory then was that vision should be used until it was absolutely necessary to learn Braille. That theory was based on age-old misconceptions about blindness and, to a disturbing degree, that misguided theory persists today. Inevitably, those beliefs colored my attitude toward my loss of vision. For all practical purposes, my formal education began when I reached the second half of fifth grade. Until that time, I had never read a book from the library. I couldn't. I began learning Braille in September of 1952. By January of 1953, I was able to read a biography of Andrew Jackson. It was not easy. Many of the bad reading habits I had developed as I tried to read print carried over to Braille. In fact, some of those bad reading habits stayed with me well into adulthood. Although schoolwork was difficult for me, I mastered a variety of other skills at home with enthusiasm. Nick and I met in the backyard of the Hawthorne when we were about three years old. Both of us lived in single-parent households with no siblings, so we bonded like brothers. Though I was legally blind, neither of us had any idea that my limited vision should make a difference. Nick and I learned what my sight would and would not allow me to do. We invented alternative techniques or devices that enabled me to participate in virtually every childhood activity. Nobody instructed us in the design of devices or techniques. We just did what had to be done. The Hawthorne was loaded with kids. The backyard was 30 feet wide and about 100 feet long, all cement. It was like a Hollywood stage set, ever-changing. One day, railroad tracks were drawn with chalk, complete with switches and crossovers. Our wagons and tricycles traversed the cross-country paths until it rained or until we tired of it. Then the yard became something else, a baseball diamond, a football gridiron, a site for statue maker, a red light, green light, and more. I participated in all of these activities. We organized teams and devised alternative ways for me to play ball. I was fully involved. At about the time Nick and I were ten, we met Tom, who lived in the building next door. Nick, Tom, and I joined other kids in the neighborhood in softball, touch football, basketball, and track events. In each of these sports, the alternatives we developed worked for me and for the rest of the kids. In softball, using the 16-inch ball that is common to the Chicago area, I was usually the pitcher. The catcher would position himself behind home plate, clap his hands, and receive my deliveries. When the pitches were too far out of the strike zone, he would tell me the location so that I could make a correction. My objective was to hit the corners so that the batter would be less likely to drive the ball up the middle since I could not field a line drive in the conventional matter. 
I also tried to keep the ball low so the batter would hit the ball into the ground. Batting presented a different set of challenges. I could not hit a pitched ball with any consistency, so I balanced the ball on the fingertips of my left hand and swung the bat with my right. I became surprisingly skilled at hitting the ball, and I had the advantage of being able to place my hits pretty accurately. But I must admit that I did strike myself out on occasion, to almost everybody's delight. It was always challenging, and we had great fun. The alternatives we devised for softball were typical of what we did for all sports. The modifications were really minimal. I played, I prevailed, I experienced ignominious defeat. But I competed, and am richer for having done so. Nick and Tom were extraordinary guys. They were imaginative, patient, and willing to learn along with me. I guess the only thing they eventually balked at was allowing me to work on their cars. They were adamant that they didn't want me to hurt my hands. I was never able to persuade them to change their minds. I suppose that by then we had begun to accumulate the caution of adulthood. Arts and crafts were a way of life for my mother. She got me involved in puppetry when I was about six. By the time I was nine years old, I was performing before audiences of up to 300. Later, I performed as a part-time professional puppeteer for 17 years and was a charter member of the Chicagoland Puppetry Guild. Mother organized talent shows in which the kids in the building and the surrounding neighborhood participated. We kids were involved in every aspect of the productions, from printing and selling tickets to painting sets to setting up a hundred or so chairs for the audience. I remember thinking about the shows that this was not fun, but in retrospect, those performances had tremendous value for all of us, especially for a blind kid. We learned something about teamwork and collective effort. When I was about seven years old, my mother began to require me to do certain chores around the Hawthorne. I installed rolls of toilet paper, carried messages to the tenants, and counted linen and towels. As I grew older and taller, I changed light bulbs, took telephone messages which I typed, shoveled snow, and cleared the yard and basement. By the time I was 12 or 13, I collected rent, recorded payment, and issued receipts. When I was 16, the building's owner paid me the staggering sum of $50 a month for my toil. It was my first paying job. At nine years of age, several of my friends and I joined a local Cub Scout pack. I was expected to participate in all of the pack projects, including weaving a reed basket and making plaster casts of animal heads. My lion's head turned out to be an astonishing shade of purple. At eleven, I joined Boy Scout Troop 300. All the boys and scoutmaster were blind. That was my first contact with a blind adult. We were expected to fulfill all of the requirements for promotion. There were no exceptions. We made a crystal set radio and a one-tube radio, and they had to work. We erected tents and cooked on fires we had to build. We learned to swim, and we competed in aquatic events at Boy Scout camp. Scouting, puppetry, and the backyard talent shows helped me build confidence. My mother taught me how to use the public transit system in Chicago. She understood the necessity for a blind person to master its use, so I learned which buses and trains went where. During the summer of 1956, I began learning to travel independently with a 46-inch white cane. My travel teacher was blind. As a high school freshman, I was required to get to and from school on public transportation. Mastery of independent travel skills and good judgment were essential. These skills have enabled me to travel confidently to 34 states for business and pleasure. As I reflect on my childhood, it is difficult for me to imagine that I missed much. Had it not been for my extraordinarily talented mother, who had the sense to let me grow and learn, and had it not been for Nick and Tom, who were not, for the most part, afraid of blindness, growing up would surely have been different. Nick, Tom, and I are still friends. Our lives bear the scars of experience, but we often recall the many events of childhood that inspire a smile, a chuckle, or a backslapping laugh.
Across three continents and generations, a candle of hope is ignited by Syed Rizvi. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Syed Rizvi. From the editor, this presentation was made at the midwinter meeting of the National Association of Blind Students on February 10, 2020. Syed is the first vice president of the division, and here are the moving remarks he made. Good morning, everyone. I would like to tell you all a story about a woman named Seema. It's World War II. The British Empire stretched thin due to the war that would supposedly end all wars. The empire has lost control of Southeast Asia. India, once a great country, fractures into three separate countries. Muhammad, living in India, flees to East Pakistan. While in East Pakistan, he attends medical school and becomes a doctor. East Pakistan falls and becomes Bangladesh, so he flees again to West Pakistan, which is modern-day Pakistan. As the country rebuilds, it needs doctors. He settles in a small village called Fullerwan, appointed to live there by the government as a rural doctor. While there, he builds his family. He gets married and has four beautiful children, Assad, Huma, Sima, and Karar. But today, we are going to talk about Sima and Assad. Sima was a bright child from birth. As she grew up, everything she put her mind to and tried, she did well and excelled. As a rural doctor, Muhammad would have to go to farmhouses and all over the countryside visiting patients. Out of his four children, he would always bring Sima as she always would bring light into the room. She was smart, intelligent, and actually knew the backcountry roads better than he did, even as a little girl. She excelled in academia, but once she came to middle school, she could no longer read the small text or see the blackboard. Muhammad didn't understand what was going on. As a family practitioner, Muhammad knew basic medicine, but he knew something was going on. He took her to the capital city to meet with the best doctors. She was diagnosed with Stargardt's disease. Living in the countryside in a third-world country, she didn't have access to a lot of great resources. Eventually, she had to leave school, and her bright light began to dwindle. Due to disability-phobic attitudes, she faced abuse and discrimination. Meanwhile, in Pakistan, infighting began, and groups like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda started spreading violence amongst the people. Seema's eldest brother, Assad, wanted the best for his family, so while his wife worked as a doctor in the main city of Karachi, she paid for him to be able to go to Europe as the Western world promised a more peaceful and equal life. While in Western Europe, he studied to become an orthopedic surgeon. He brought over his family, one by one, wife and his two children. While in Europe, he realized that as a foreign-born doctor, he could never become a full-fledged attending doctor in the Irish hospitals, since he wasn't an Irish citizen. He wanted to live in a country where there was complete equality, no matter his origin or the color of skin. So he looked toward America, the promised land. The streets, he had heard, they were paved with gold. He moved to Connecticut. Once they moved to America, they had their third child. Each of his three children all excelled. His eldest son was a football player, an all-American kind of kid, was on the swim team, and went to UMass Amherst and Johns Hopkins University. His daughter went to Mount Holyoke, went to Tufts, and became a dentist. His third child, well, the signs started to pop up, but Assad ignored them because he couldn't accept that they were there. His son would go to school and complain that he couldn't see the board. He would complain that he wasn't able to see the sheets or his work. Assad, being a doctor, knew how genetics work, and he knew that since his sister had stargarts, it was possible that his son could have it as well. But again, that would be something too hard to face. Finally, at some point, the reality had to be met. He took his son to an ophthalmologist and specialist in stargarts, and he was diagnosed with the disease. Assad thought about his father's story, Muhammad, having to leave India, going to Bangladesh, going to Pakistan. Then he thought about his own story, having to escape from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, 
going to Europe and bouncing around from Ireland to Scotland, and finally to the United States. He thought, I'm 48 now, why do I have to face something like this? I have bounced all around the world and was promised the American dream. That the streets would be paved with gold. How could this happen here? As his son moved forward, they tried to help his problem by using CCTV, using magnifiers, but nothing really helped. In high school, he didn't do as great as he could have, and he fell behind his older siblings. He became depressed. Older siblings were becoming doctors and dentists and playing sports, and he, he was barred from full access. For Assad, it was like watching his little sister's life story play in front of his eyes all over again. It was as if it was a nightmare that could never end. But once his son began college, an organization reached out to him when he applied for a state scholarship. That organization was called the National Federation of the Blind. That small light that had dwindled away was once again ignited. His new Federation friends told him he could be anything he wanted and that his blindness would not determine his future. He started getting straight A's in college. He went from failing high school to the dean's list and then the president's list. His blind mentors and even university staff told him, why don't you go transfer to a better university? But first, we have a training center run by an entire blind staff where they train you within six to nine months to make it so your blindness can be reduced to a mere nuisance. Like Muhammad and his father Assad, his journey began. Starting in Massachusetts, he moved to Louisiana for nine months and got the training he needed. From Louisiana, he moved to Texas and attended a great university. Whereas before, he was barred from accessing every aspect of life, now he was able to excel academically, socially, spiritually, and religiously. In May, he's graduating. For four years, he's been competing for the number one men's powerlifting team in the United States. In May, he'll graduate with high honors. In June, he's getting married. In the fall, he'll be heading to law school and will be living the life that Seema never could. But since we began with a tragic story, like all great stories, there's always a happy ending. He still talks to Seema regularly on the phone, and Seema says, You know what? Everything that I had to go through, it's fine. You are living the life I've always wanted, and that makes it okay for me. I am happy through you. Ladies and gentlemen, Seema is my aunt. A Taboo Topic for People Who Are Blind, Hearing Loss, Gasp, by Marsha Drenth. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Joe and Marsha Drenth. From the editor, Marsha lives in Pennsylvania and works as a social worker providing instruction in assistive technology. She is the president of the Pennsylvania Association of the Deafblind and first vice president of the National Deafblind Division. She has been a federationist since she was three, the age at which she attended her first convention. Issues faced by the deafblind are tremendously important, and Marsha has written a wonderful piece. Enjoy. First, you are probably saying to yourself that hearing loss is not a taboo topic. You are also probably saying that you know many people who have a hearing loss. But if they are a person who already is blind, do they acknowledge or talk about that hearing loss? Do they, or maybe even you, admit to the presence of hearing loss? Do you ask others to speak up when you can't hear them? Or do you just ignore the problem, rationalizing that it is not important to know what the person is saying and go on with your normal activities? Do you shy away from interacting with people who have strong accents? Do you dislike crowds because they are too noisy and make it difficult to hear people speaking to you? How does it apply to you and others who are blind and who also have a hearing loss? Depending on the severity of hearing loss, it can cause difficulty in communication, independent living, navigation, social interaction, education, and employment. In most cases, there are two different communities within which a person becomes deaf-blind. The blind community in which someone loses hearing and the deaf-hard-of-hearing community in which someone loses vision. 
In other cases, some simultaneously obtain both hearing and vision loss slowly or suddenly for various reasons. Deafblind individuals vary greatly in their reason for the hearing and vision loss, communication modalities for expressive and receptive language, education, orientation and mobility, support systems, involvement, experiences, and exposure. A combination of hearing loss and vision loss can happen at any point in a person's life and affects all races, ethnic backgrounds, education levels, genders, income levels, and pre-existing disabilities. Why does this affect the greater disability community? As blind people, we use our hearing to the best of our abilities. By no means am I saying that blind people always have supernatural hearing, nor do blind people hear better than sighted people, but blind people learn to use their hearing to its fullest extent. For example, when walking down the street, blind people can hear buildings, doorways, trees, people walking by, traffic, and so much more. As blind people, we are taught to listen for traffic to make sure that it's safe to cross the street. As blind people, we can recognize voices and tell you who is nearby. As blind people, we use our hearing to locate other people and objects within our environment. Nothing is wrong with this, since using one's hearing to compensate for the loss of vision makes sense. Unfortunately, this heavy dependence on hearing causes a blind person to be extremely fearful of losing that hearing, similar to how a sighted person is mortally afraid of losing their vision. Blind people cannot imagine losing their hearing. They think the world will be over if they ever lose it. Many times people will say, that will never be me, my hearing will always be good. These and many other reasons cause us to ignore the possibility that we could lose our hearing at any point in our lives, often making it a taboo topic. How do I know all of this? Because I was once one of those blind people who refused to address the possibility of losing my hearing, and now I am deafblind. Yes, it can happen to anyone, at any time, anywhere, for a number of reasons. My story of hearing loss began in 2007. After living with blindness most of my life, I started to become lost in familiar environments that I frequented daily. I was connected with my local chapter of the National Federation of the Blind, and many blind people told me that I just needed more orientation and mobility training, not knowing that I had been using a long white cane since I was five years of age. A friend who worked as an O&M instructor suggested that I have my hearing tested. So I made the appointment, telling myself that I was just having a lot of issues lately and nothing was wrong. At the end of the hearing test, the audiologist told me that I had hearing loss. My first reaction was that there was no way, and that this could not happen to me. It was true, however, and I was fitted for hearing aids. I did not wear the hearing aids, though, because I did not like the way they fit in my ear or how they made things sound. I was in pure denial. I moved to Baltimore, Maryland in September 2008 for a job that unfortunately never materialized. I was still not wearing the hearing aids for the same reasons, but I did notice that I could not hear voices in loud places and could no longer hear the openings of doorways. I participated in the 2009 NFB Youth Slam as a marshal, still not wearing those hearing aids. I married my now husband in December 2009 and moved to Pennsylvania. I was still not wearing the hearing aids, although I noticed more changes in my hearing. In 2011, my hearing took a sharp downturn, and I had issues hearing my husband in the same room, understanding speech, hearing traffic, and using jaws on my computer. I finally took the hearing aids out of the box and put them into my ears. I still disliked how they felt and how they sounded. Between 2011 and 2013, I transitioned from a mild hearing loss to profoundly deaf. In the spring of 2012, I transferred from the local community college to Temple University to finish my degree in social work. Dealing with a major hearing loss and attending classes at a major university in the fall semester of 2012 and the spring semester of 2013 became overwhelming. Even with hearing aids and listening devices, I could not hear my professors and classmates. 
I began to fear that I would not hear traffic when crossing major streets in Philadelphia. Overall, life became much more challenging, and I realized that my hearing-based skills were insufficient for safely and successfully continuing my education. I needed to learn deafblind skills. Therefore, from November 2013 to July 2014, I attended the Helen Keller National Center for Deafblind Youths and Adults in New York, HKNC. HKNC is similar to an NFB training center in that it teaches Braille, communication, independent living skills, technology, orientation and mobility, and job readiness skills, yet it does so with deafblindness in mind. For instance, HKNC offers communication training in tactile American Sign Language using the hand-over-hand method for feeling what another person is signing. Orientation and mobility is targeted directly at teaching skills for deafblind persons to be independent, such as using communication cards for receiving information about the environment when Braille, spoken language, and sign language are not available. Every consumer at HKNC faces the duality of hearing and vision loss, and sharing this journey with others helps address the social and emotional aspects of the struggle. Although I did not like being away from my family and friends, my time at HKNC was probably one of the best things that helped me during that time. After completing my training at HKNC, I enrolled for my senior year at Temple University. This last year of my undergraduate career was challenging in a new way, since I was using tactile sign language interpreters for communication and computer-assisted real-time translation, CART, with a Braille display for reading what their professor wrote on the board. I was blessed to have learned Braille at a young age, since I was now using Braille in class for CART and at home for reading my textbooks. I took 17 credit hours in both the fall and spring semesters, with an additional 200-hour internship each semester. In May 2015, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in social work. In June 2015, I was hired to be the program manager for the Pennsylvania Statewide Deafblind Support Service Provider Program. During my four and a half years in that position, I met many individuals who were deafblind, both those who came from the deaf community and others who came from the blind community. One thing they all had in common was that it was taboo to speak about the vision and hearing loss they were experiencing in their communities of origin. Currently, I hold a social work-slash-teaching position in Philadelphia. Our motto in the National Federation of the Blind is that blindness is just a characteristic and that we as blind individuals can live the lives we want. The same can be applied to people who are blind and have a hearing loss. It is respectable to be blind, and it is equally respectable to be deafblind. Unfortunately, misunderstanding leads to many situations in which blind people negatively judge deafblind people because they use different O&M techniques have different communication needs, or take more time to collect information about their environment. Sometimes deafblind individuals are avoided, ignored, brushed off, or excluded from important conversations within the local, state, or national disability communities. Much of the time, deafblind persons are not sought out to give their perspectives or feedback. This all leads to deafblind individuals believing that the label deafblind means that one is a lesser person or that one is exactly like Helen Keller or a modern-day Haben Girma. Bracket, first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School, close bracket. Just as it should not be taboo to talk about blindness, it should not be taboo to talk about hearing loss with blindness. So why is this topic not being discussed within the general disability and NFB communities? Why do deafblind men and women feel like they are at the bottom of the disability hierarchy? Why aren't more people identifying as blind people who also have a hearing loss? I identify as a person who is deafblind, and it is okay to have both a hearing and vision loss. I am not afraid to say that I cannot understand a person or ask him slash her to please slow down in his or her speech. I am also not afraid to say that deafblindness is not always like what Helen Keller experienced. 
I will tell people who I am and what I need. So should you. The next time you cannot hear something or someone, speak up and make your needs understood in a respectful, polite manner. Tell people that your hearing loss causes some issues in this or that situation. This is the first step on the path of freedom and independence. Be proud of who you are, with or without a hearing loss. Hearing loss does not mean that you're less of a person or that your life will be less. It simply means that you will have different but wonderful experiences. It is okay for me to be deafblind. It's okay for others to be deafblind. And it's okay for you to be deafblind. Learning to Lead One Step at a Time by Brittany Ingram From the Editor Brittany Ingram lives with her husband, Isaiah, and her two-year-old daughter, Marjorie. Brittany wants to go beyond her high school diploma, and when family responsibilities allow, she wants to get a college degree. She loves to read, and when the time comes, she will be homeschooling her daughter. Her grandmother was told about the organization when Brittany was in elementary school, so she has been a member since the age of nine. She now serves as the president of the Fredericksburg area chapter of the NFB of Virginia. She likes to write poetry and stories, loves to read, and knits on a knitting loom. Her favorite hobby is self-education, and she is, in her own words, an autodidact. This article first appeared in the September 2019 issue of The Vigilant, the newsletter of the National Federation of the Blind of Virginia. The journey that has brought me to this point in my life, where I am furiously trying to balance family, personal health, and volunteer responsibilities, has been a long and tiresome road. I have been asked to share some of my journey with you, and I hope I can do my story justice. At first glance, I am not an image of perfect leadership. I never dreamed of really taking the world by storm or making a career out of activism. I am quiet, reserved, introverted, a reader, and a thinker. I enjoy a simple lifestyle that includes good homemade meals and playing with my baby. So when I received a phone call that would uproot my quiet little world, I was, you could say, blindsided. I have been a member of the National Federation of the Blind since I was nine years old. I lost my sight when I was five and was told when I was six that I was broken. My blindness is due to childhood abuse which resulted in Stevens-Johnson syndrome. After being placed in foster care, I was told that, because my eyes were damaged, my family did not want me. Of course, this was completely absurd and my grandmother was quick to gain custody of both me and my little brother. But the words calling me unwanted and broken have never really left me. And they were quite believable until my grandmother decided to expose me to the organization where blind and broken are as opposite as earth and sky. I remember all the events of my years with the organization running through my mind when the president of the historic Fredericksburg chapter called me in July 2018. My daughter was about nine months old, and since she had been born, I had only gone to one monthly meeting and had not even thought to pay my yearly dues. For all intents and purposes, I was inactive and focusing on learning to parent as a blind mother. So I was shocked to say the least when I was asked to participate in the Virginia Chapter Leadership Institute. I immediately thought I was the wrong person for the job. I was not an example of strong blind independence, and I had a baby girl who was starting to show signs of needing additional attention and care. Yet I thought of how much smaller and disinterested the chapter had seemed the last time I had been there, and I started to feel both sadness and resolve building up. For reasons I did not fully comprehend, they wanted me to represent the Fredericksburg chapter in this leadership thing. I sighed and agreed, just so long as it did not interfere with my parenting duties. I made it clear that, as much as I loved and believed in the NFB, my daughter came first, and so I was in. I have been on a roller coaster ride this past year. I started out with very little confidence, ability, or even conviction. Doubts, second guesses, and fear of imperfection and useless contributions have plagued my heart and mind for months. But something strange and unexpected has also been coming over me. It all started in December when a project was sent out for the leadership members to complete in preparation for our first gathering in January. 
It was a personality quiz that highlighted your strengths, preferences, and overall character. I was once again taken by surprise. Here was something that told me what I was good at, organization, communication, and staying focused. I felt like I was looking into the mirror for the first time, and as time passed, I began to recognize those and other skills coming forward. I noticed how certain traits translated beyond my leadership role and into my role as wife and mother, friend and sister, and how it began to shape my daily priorities. I was curious, and when that happens, there is only one result. I go diving into books and research everything I can get my hands on. How could I use these traits and skills in my leadership role to their most productive uses? What really defines leadership, and do I have all the qualifications? Is there a way to use my shortcomings and weaknesses as effectively as I use my strengths and talents? The answers were right there if I could only find them. Here is what I've learned so far. I will probably never stop discovering new philosophies, debatable definitions, and opinionated preferences when it comes to leadership. But between the conversations with the other participants, all the books and resource materials, and my own revelations, I also am beginning to understand who I am and how I personally portray the image of a leader. Everything in life is about balancing priorities, knowing yourself well enough to know when to draw the line in the sand, and not wasting any time on what you are not fully passionate about. This past year, I have not only made some great friends through this program, but I have discovered who I really am, the kind of person I want to model for my daughter, and the kind of partner I hope to be for my husband. Doubt and fear are still a daily obstacle for me, but I am learning to work with them and use them to my advantage, as reasons for doing instead of reasons for running. I still have a lot to learn, a lot to improve on, but leadership is no different from any other goal in life. I just have to slow down, breathe deeply, and take the journey one step at a time. Owning Your Voice by Nina Maranka From the editor, Nina Maranka is a bright, witty federationist whose writing is both entertaining and educational. I particularly like the case she makes for not remaining ignorant but embracing the things she needs to learn. Nina is currently working on her bachelor's degree in psychology and criminal justice at Medell College and is simultaneously getting training at the Louisiana Center for the Blind. Her goal is to get her Ph.D. in clinical psychology. This speech was delivered at the National Association of Blind Students Leadership Seminar, which occurred just before the 2020 Washington Seminar. Here is what she said. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't already know me, I'm Nina Maranka. I'm from New York, but am currently in training at the Louisiana Center for the Blind. I'm studying psychology and criminal justice. My goal is to make a career in the field of trauma-informed mental health and to conduct clinical-minded research. But beyond those boring details, I'm an extrovert, if you haven't figured that one out already. Coffee is of equal importance to oxygen in my book, and when I'm not being loud, which considering I come from a large Italian family tends to be rare, you can find me reading or binge-watching murder shows. I've been involved with the NFB for almost a year and a half. I'm very excited to speak with you all today. These remarks required a bit of reflection from me on the last year and life in general. About a year ago, I heard a dynamic and beautiful person speak at the 2019 NABS Winter Seminar. She is a close friend of mine and the same person who asked me to speak with you all as a matter of fact. She told her story with such confidence and conviction. Her words were beautifully honest, fueled with determination and a sense of individuality. She talked about growth, self-discovery, and learning to view obstacles as a source of strength rather than reasons to doubt our abilities. When I think of owning your voice, her speech still jumps to the forefront of my mind. The energy in that room had been powerful. Her speech made me think, I want to do that. I want to stand up and own my words like that. I want to help others feel like that. At this time last year, it wasn't that I had never advocated before. Sure, I had spoken up during the run-of-the-mill daily interactions in a coffee shop, on the bus, in the grocery store. 
The jobs I hold while in school require me to talk with students and families on a daily basis about a variety of services and individual circumstances. I didn't have a problem asking questions or attempting to correct misconceptions. In short, if you would have asked me back then if I owned my voice, I would have responded quickly with, Of course I do. I only now see that I was wrong. What does it mean to own your voice? I asked a group of students that very question the other day. I received answers about realizing the impact you can have, about being cautious with tone and dynamics, and even about copywriting one's voice so that you could literally own said voice. Here's the thing. None of those answers were wrong. After explaining that I was using their answers as a starting place when preparing this speech, someone turned to me and asked, Well, what does it mean to you to own your voice? Surprisingly, I had to stop and think. I wanted to pinpoint the first time I felt that I could truly use my voice for more than just yelling about which of my brothers ate the remains of a pizza that I had counted on for lunch. So I thought about it, and it took me back to a classroom, of all places. But in this instance, I was not the student. I just finished reading a story in Braille to a bunch of first and second graders. It was the first time I did school outreach. Since then, I've talked in countless classrooms, auditoriums, and cafeterias. Those presentations are beyond enjoyable, especially when you factor in the open and honest nature of kids. They ask questions that adults will flinch away from, apologizing and admonishing, instead of praising curiosity and stimulating acceptance. I'll get back to the importance of questions in a moment, but first, I'd like to tell you all about my first experience speaking in a classroom. The kids were seated in a circle on a carpet. There were maybe ten or twelve of them. Before reading, we talked. Little fingertips skimmed braille pages and held my cane, while small voices asked questions that adults wonder but would never let themselves ask. After I read the story, the little boy who had been showing the pictures in the book to his classmates stood before me, nervously guiding my hand because he wanted to show me the braces that covered at least half of his body. That's so cool, I exclaimed. You're like Iron Man, you know? You're a real superhero. I think that's awesome. His small hand slapped mine in a high five, and I could hear the smile in his voice as he laughed. His classmates watched on, in silent awe of my revelation, that this little boy may in fact wear gear that resembled a real-life superhero, instead of gear that made it no doubt difficult to run and play like everyone else. It wasn't until after that I found out this little boy had been struggling with being picked on by his classmates, with learning to use his voice, with learning to accept that he was different from the other kids. This little dude's name is Keith, and to this day, that memory sticks with me. After leaving that day, my heart was content. Put simply, I was happy and exhilarated all at once. It was the first time I truly felt I owned my voice, and all of the credit goes to a superhero-loving six-year-old. Since then I've spoken in countless classrooms, whether they are filled with bubbly five-year-olds or students studying to become teachers. However, I wouldn't be completely honest if I acted as if one experience made me comfortable with owning my voice, in situations related to blindness and in those that are not. Instead, it has been a collection of small moments that have transformed me from someone who found walking to the corner or asking for assistance incredibly terrifying. It's been a long process for me, and I am still learning. Just to name a few experiences in which I feel that I have owned my voice offhand, advocating at last year's Washington seminar, hosting and producing a podcast with other students, being a part of a panel discussion teaching families how to ensure equal college education for students with disabilities, and preparing my research papers for submission for publication. All of these things may seem different on the surface, but all of them give me the feeling I had when I spoke to kids in a classroom for the first time. A mix of contentment and exhilaration. Owning your voice doesn't happen with one encounter. Rather, it's about finding where you feel content using your voice for good, for change, to stand up for what you believe in. 
Today I feel confident when standing in the face of adversity because I know that I have the power through my voice to speak up. I have the power to be a leader but also admit when I do not know something. That is why questions are so important. The majority of misconceptions stem from a lack of knowledge. However, when learning to own your voice, I urge you to embrace this lack of knowledge instead of being disquieted by it. It is a perfect starting place for growth and education. I encourage you to help others ask questions and to recognize the importance of asking them yourself. I have found that this is a huge part of owning your voice and using it to the best of your ability. I would like to bring up another point about owning your voice that I personally struggle with. This may seem like common sense, but it is worth mentioning. Owning your voice does not mean that you will always be the perfect advocate or mentor or student, whatever your goal is, all of the time. This is something I personally struggle with because I'm a major perfectionist and sometimes I feel like I should be able to advocate for it all, fix it all, react in the best possible way all of the time. Last summer, several students and I were traveling back to an event using Lyft. It had been a weekend filled with discussions on advocating, on learning to use your voice the way you want to, whether that be through leadership or something else. After first accusing us that we were not blind and lecturing us on proper passenger etiquette because, you know, the fact that every person had either a cane or a dog apparently didn't solidify the whole blind thing for him, he stated, You know, I think it's great that all of you are coming out. It's an inspiration. So we're an inspiration because we're living our lives, I asked. Yes, isn't that the point, the driver said, before attempting to educate me about how the efforts of blind people were heroic and inspirational because we clearly shouldn't be traveling alone. I ended up snapping at the driver to stop speaking to us. I was furious. You'd think most of my anger would be directed at the driver, right? Oh, it was, and my friend found it helpful to announce upon arriving at our destination, yeah, I saw her inner Italian come out for the first time. But I was actually mad at myself. How could I mentor these students and teach them to use their voices for good if I can't even do that with a Lyft driver? Doesn't that make me a hypocrite of the highest degree? This bothered me for a bit until I helped lead a group discussion that got pretty personal. A student whom I'd been working with that weekend, someone who had barely spoken a word the first night, was the top contributor in this conversation. She shared experiences, listened to others, and responded beautifully. She was coming out of her shell, and to this day I'm still witnessing this transformation. I realized something that day. No matter how you choose to own your voice, because it is your choice, you will not always use it correctly or to the best of your ability. There will be times when you think, why do I even bother? But there will be many more moments when you think, I did the right thing. My voice had an impact here. I live for those little victories. As you learn to grow and find where you feel both content and exhilarated while using your voice, remember that owning your voice is a lifelong process. It can be fraught with uncertainty and discomfort. But owning your voice also means you will experience countless small victories, experiences that fill your heart and teach you lessons that will bring you closer to the person you want to be. I challenge you to never forget the impact of a single conversation. I challenge you to push yourself out of your comfort zone in any way you feel best fits you. I challenge you to find what you love, because in my experience, passion grants us the ability to own our voice in a way that knowledge at times may not. And finally, I challenge you to revel in the small victories, to surround yourself with people who encourage you to own your voice in all that you do, and to always, always aspire for more. I would like to leave you all with a quote from Maya Angelou, that I feel sums up the nature of the process of learning to own your voice. She says, We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. The Blessed Blind Big Brother by Sean Calloway Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Sean Calloway is pictured here with his much younger brother and sister when they were children. 
Photo 2, the caption, Sean poses with his now adult siblings. From the editor, Sean Calloway is a husband, father, breadwinner, the affiliate president for the District of Columbia, and a member of the National Federation of the Blind Board of Directors. But before he became all these things, he was a younger man who had family responsibilities. Like Sean, I am the oldest sibling. As the oldest, we are told we need to model good behavior for the younger children, but it isn't until they become adults that they tell you how they look to us for guidance, strength, and what they might become. Here is Sean's experience. For the first ten years of my life, I did not have siblings, and my mother's siblings did not have children either. Even though I enjoyed the extra attention from loved ones, I had a burning desire to be a big brother and not an only child. In 1982, my wish was fulfilled after the arrival of my little brother Anthony. In 1987, I was blessed with another sibling after the arrival of my baby sister, Fern. During my preteen and adolescent years, being a big brother was truly a joy and an honor. I participated in sibling activities such as playing Nintendo with my brother and playing dolls with my sister. I was often charged by my parents to take my siblings to the playground. Seeing the smiles on my siblings' faces as they played on the monkey bars or in the sandbox was a sight to behold. Most importantly, as a big brother, I was anointed to provide guidance and advice when necessary. Often my brother would ask for advice and we would have discussions on subjects ranging from navigating friendships to how to avoid getting in trouble with our parents. My sister was a toddler and she made sure that I coddled her when she wanted to be coddled. I also read books to her when she wanted to be read to. In 1990, I decided to attend college in South Carolina. Although I was excited to move eight hours away from home, I felt some sense of sadness because I truly missed my brother and sister. However, during my second year in college, my life dramatically changed. Due to a horrific accident, I lost my eyesight and had to return home. As I traveled back from South Carolina, there were many questions I asked myself. The primary question was, as a blind person, how will my siblings treat me? Even though my brother and sister were nine and four, it truly mattered how they felt about me as a big brother. When I returned home, I was happy to learn that the relationship did not change. At nine, my brother understood that I was blind and he quickly adapted to it. On the other hand, my sister was too young to understand my blindness and it took time for her to adjust to my vision loss. It happened at about four and a half. One day she sat in my lap and asked me to read her a book. I told her, Fern, I cannot read a book to you because I am blind. My sister paused and said, That's right, you are blind, so I am going to get a book and read to you. This scenario warmed my heart and I was in for a wonderful supportive ride with my siblings. To them I was still the big brother. As the years passed, they continued to seek advice and guidance from me. My brother would ask me questions about girls and sports. My sister would ask questions about choosing a college and the process of buying a home. More importantly, when I provided them with constructive criticism, they were never dismissive of my comments or suggestions. In addition, if my siblings had an issue with me, they had no problems expressing their feelings. Observers who are reading this article may say to themselves, siblings are supposed to be supportive and caring for the loved one who has become blind or disabled. However, as a facilitator of a peer support group for people experiencing vision loss, I have encountered siblings of people who are blind or disabled who have received negative emotional feelings because of their sibling's disability. These feelings include resentment, embarrassment, and feeling as though they are a parent and not a brother or sister. First, feelings of resentment manifest within a sibling because they may feel that all of the attention has been diverted to the disabled sibling. Once a family member acquires a disability, other family members tend to focus on the disabled loved one all the times. The ongoing special attention tends to occur because the parents may feel that the primary focus should be on the disabled child. Also, special attention toward the disabled sibling can occur at extended family outings and reunions. This attention may cause a sibling to feel isolated and withdrawn. 
Secondly, some siblings feel embarrassed being out in public with their disabled sibling. The feelings of embarrassment further escalate because the sibling watches people stare and whisper to themselves about his or her disabled sibling. This may cause the sibling to feel ashamed and unhappy about the unwanted attention. Lastly, some siblings feel parentified because their disabled sibling is not independent and may require constant assistance with daily needs. This is most common for the sibling of an individual who has experienced vision loss. If you are a blind person who has not obtained independent living skills, you are going to be extremely dependent on close family members and friends. Therefore, the sibling is placed in a position of feeling as if they must always care for the daily needs of his or her disabled sibling. This can cause high levels of stress and anxiety. As I continue to facilitate a peer support group, I have encouraged siblings to locate and participate in support groups and organizations for siblings of individuals with disabilities. Also, I have encouraged siblings and other family members to seek family and group counseling to address negative feelings developed from interacting with their disabled loved one. Support groups and group counseling can assist siblings in releasing any suppressed emotions they may possess toward their disabled sibling. Also, disabled siblings will be able to freely express themselves about their life as a disabled person. This is especially important if the sibling recently acquired the disability. Adjusting to having a disability is not only difficult for the sibling who acquires it, but for all family members and friends who play an integral part in the life of the disabled sibling. Recently, I had a conversation with my siblings, and I asked them if they experienced resentment, embarrassment, or feelings of being a parent because of my blindness. My siblings emphatically said no to the above questions and made it clear that my blindness was never an issue to them. Credit for my siblings' feelings must be given to our parents. Whatever situations or circumstances that have occurred within the lives of my siblings and I, my parents have always made sure to treat us equally, and neither my siblings nor I received more attention than the other. Also, I am truly blessed to have uncles, aunts, cousins, and close family friends who have been supportive of me and have given my siblings the equal attention and support they deserve. Anthony and Fern are now 37 and 32 years old, respectively, and they are leading productive lives. Anthony works for Maryland Park and Planning as a recreational counselor for providing guidance and assistance to children with disabilities. Fern is a senior health analyst for an agency in Washington, D.C. My siblings have provided me support as I continue my tenure as president of the National Federation of the Blind of the District of Columbia. They have volunteered and participated in several federation events, including fundraisers, community outreach events, and state and national conventions. Over the years, I have received awards for my volunteer and advocacy efforts for the blind and disabled community. The recognition ranges from receiving the NFB of D.C. Community Services Division Oliver Washington Pace Award to receiving a citation from United States Senator Chris Van Hollen for my work in bringing awareness to the lack of employment opportunities for blind people. However, my most cherished award was received in a parked car in Washington, D.C., My sister gave me a ride home from a family event, and when I began to get out of the car, my sister told me to stick out my hand. When I reached my right hand toward her, it touched her arm. On her arm were dots. I asked my sister, Why do you have dots on your arm? She said, The dots are a braille tattoo that spells love. I asked my sister what made her get a tattoo in braille. She replied, It is to honor you and to show you how proud I am of you. She also said that the tattoo is in recognition of the blind community. After entering my home, I sat on my couch, and tears began rolling down my face. The tears represented the happiness I felt from my sister's recognition of me, but the tears also represented my recognizing that I am a blessed, blind big brother. Leave a Legacy For more than 75 years, the National Federation of the Blind has worked to transform the dreams of hundreds of thousands of blind people into reality, and with your support, we will continue to do so for decades to come. 
We sincerely hope that you will plan to be part of our enduring movement by adding the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary in your will. A gift to the National Federation of the Blind in your will is more than just a charitable, tax-deductible donation. It is a way to join in the work to help blind people live the lives they want that leaves a lasting imprint on the lives of thousands of blind children and adults. With your help, the NFB will continue to give blind children the gift of literacy through Braille, promote the independent travel of the blind by providing free, long white canes to blind people in need, develop dynamic educational projects and programs that show blind youth that science and math are within their reach, deliver hundreds of accessible newspapers and magazines to provide blind people the essential information necessary to be actively involved in their communities, offer aids and appliances that help seniors losing vision maintain their independence, and fund scholarship programs so that blind students can achieve their dreams. Plan to leave a legacy. Creating a will gives you the final say in what happens to your possessions and is the only way to be sure that your remaining assets are distributed according to your passions and beliefs. Many people fear creating a will or believe it's not necessary until they are much older. Others think that it's expensive and confusing. However, it is one of the most important things you will do, and with new online legal programs, it is easier and cheaper than ever before. If you do decide to create or revise your will, consider the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary. Visit www.nfb.org slash planned giving or call 410-659-9314, extension 2422, for more information. Together with love, hope, determination, and your support, we will continue to transform dreams into reality. Invest in Opportunity The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. A donation to the National Federation of the Blind allows you to invest in a movement that removes the fear from blindness. Your investment is your vote of confidence in the value and capacity of blind people and reflects the high expectations we have for all blind Americans, combating the low expectations that create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. In 2017, the NFB distributed over 7,000 canes to blind people across the United States, empowering them to travel safely and independently throughout their communities hosted 48 NFB Bell Academy programs, which served more than 350 blind students throughout the United States, provided over $100,000 in scholarships to blind students, making a post-secondary education affordable and attainable, delivered audio newspaper and magazine services to 118,900 subscribers, providing free access to over 500 local, national, and international publications. In the third year of the program, over 350 braille-writing slates and styluses were given free of charge to blind users. Just imagine what we'll do next year, and with your help, what can be accomplished for years to come. Below are just a few of the many diverse, tax-deductible ways you can lend your support to the National Federation of the Blind. Vehicle Donation Program The NFB now accepts donated vehicles, including cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, or recreational vehicles. Just call 855-659-9314, toll-free, and a representative can make arrangements to pick up your donation. It doesn't have to be working. We can also answer any questions you have. General Donation General donations help support the ongoing programs of the NFB and the work to help blind people live the lives they want. Donate online with a credit card or through the mail with check or money order. Visit www.nfb.org make dash gift for more information. Bequests 
Even if you can't afford a gift right now, including the National Federation of the Blind in your will enables you to contribute by expressing your commitment to the organization and promises support for future generations of blind people across the country. Visit www.nfb.org slash planned dash giving or call 410-659-9314, extension 2422, for more information. Pre-authorized contribution. Through the pre-authorized contribution, PAC program, supporters sustain the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind by making recurring monthly donations by direct withdrawal of funds from a checking account or a charge to a credit card. To enroll, visit www.nfb.org slash make dash gift and complete the pre-authorized contribution form and return it to the address listed on the form. Blueprint for Learning by Stephen O. Benson There is a photo on the page. The caption, Stephen O. Benson. From the editor, the following is reprinted from the Braille Monitor, October 1991, complete with its original editor's note. Editor's Note from Dr. Kenneth Jernigan In many ways, a great deal of progress has been made by blind people in recent times regarding jobs, better special tools and equipment, and increased understanding. But in at least one critical area, blind children growing up today are being very badly shortchanged in a way that was very nearly unheard of when I was a child in the mid-1930s. In recent decades, most blind children have not routinely been taught how to read and write Braille. Many of these children have now reached adulthood. I talk to them by the hundreds. Almost without exception, they feel they were betrayed by their teachers and the other experts their parents trusted to plan their education. We as blind people should not have to fight for blind children to have the chance to learn to read and write Braille. Parents expect schools to teach sighted children how to read and write, and there are laws requiring that it be done. We want the laws to protect blind children too, but the experts often fight against such laws. They seem to think deciding whether to teach a blind child to read Braille is very complicated. The truth is that it is very simple. If a child can't see well enough to read print easily, Braille should be taught. But that is not what usually happens, and the blind child pays a heavy price for the rest of his or her life. Stephen Benson is totally blind and is president of the National Federation of the Blind of Illinois. In Blueprint for Learning, he describes in vivid detail the experts' decisions which crippled his early education. Unfortunately, his experience is still being repeated in countless lives across our country. Here is what he says. At one and a half years of age, my eye condition was diagnosed as retinitis pigmentosa, which often results in total blindness. As I approached first grade, my doctors and teachers, the team of professionals, asserted that I should use my limited vision to its maximum for as long as possible. My family was directed to enroll me in what was then called sight-saving. Print was to be the medium by which I was to learn to read. The sight-saving classroom was equipped with the best technology of the day, 1948. Dark green chalkboards with yellow chalk, yellow paper with heavy green lines, indirect lighting, desks with adjustable work surfaces that allowed the student to bring reading and writing material closer to the face, and typewriters with large print. Each student wore prescription lenses and had access to handheld magnifiers. In addition, we used large print textbooks. In third grade, we learned to type by the touch typing method. In my case and in countless others, neither equipment nor teaching techniques would or could work. The techniques in the teacher's efforts were misapplied. The prescription for sight-saving class was an error. From the first day of class, my limited vision prevented me from reading effectively. Over the course of the next four and a half years, my visual acuity decreased, while the print I was expected to read became smaller. I remember alternately gazing out the window and puzzling over a printed page. By fourth grade, my teachers had to print out my classwork by hand, 
using large letters and India ink. With all of that, I still felt as though I was reading gray print on gray paper. Yet I remained in sight-saving class until the middle of fifth grade. The toll I paid for the professional's decisions was high. I dreaded reading. My confidence eroded. I feared blindness. I acquired bad reading habits that carried over into adulthood. I never checked a book out of the library. Why should I? I couldn't read it. During the summer of 1952, the professionals finally admitted that print might not be the right way for me to be getting an education. In September of that year, I was transferred to what we referred to as the blind school, where I began to learn Braille. It wasn't difficult. My teacher was competent. She knew Braille. She gave me positive encouragement. My reading and writing speeds were slow at first. However, as I gained proficiency and confidence, speeds increased. In January of 1953, at age 11, I checked out and read a library book for the first time in my life. It was in Braille. Over the last 40 years, teams of professionals have continued to make the same foolish and costly decisions, probably with greater frequency as the years have passed. As a member of the National Federation of the Blind's Scholarship Committee, I have met an astounding number of high school and college students who, because they had some vision, were deprived of Braille or were discouraged from learning it without regard to whether the student could read print well enough to compete with sighted peers. One scholarship applicant, not unusual, uses taped books and a closed-circuit television magnifier. Under the best conditions, she is able to read for only a minute at a time, and that with great discomfort. She is enrolled as a part-time student in a community college, partly because her vision doesn't allow her to meet the reading and writing demands of full-time status. She has asked to be taught Braille, but her family and the team of professionals with whom she has worked have actively discouraged it. Too many parents assume that the experts must know what's best and will necessarily do what's best for the child. Those assumptions are often wrong and prove to be quite costly to the blind child. What's best for the child is a catchphrase that too often translates into decisions that are convenient for the teacher, school, or district, and into efforts to make the blind child's educational needs conform to budget priorities. Was my experience 40 years ago and that of the college student I described mere coincidence? I don't believe they were, nor do I believe that de-emphasis on literacy, Braille, was or is accidental. De-emphasis on Braille is disgraceful, just as de-emphasis on print would be. People who have a good command of reading and writing skills tend to do better in math, science, history, languages, music, and all the rest. People who can read and write successfully have a better chance at competitive employment and every other situation in life, for that matter. The anti-literacy-slash-anti-Braille position taken by so many educators of blind children and adults has had wider negative impact than they might imagine. Several years ago, I worked at an agency for the blind in Chicago. In support of a program to teach Braille, I submitted a grant request to the Chicago Tribune Foundation. The grant request was turned down. The reasons, according to a foundation spokesman, were that Braille has nothing to do with literacy, it is obsolete, and reading can be done by recordings. I was disappointed that the program did not receive that support. I was disgusted by the ignorance of the foundation personnel, but I was not surprised. For 15 years I taught Braille for the Veterans Administration at Heinz Hospital. One of my assigned duties was to supervise Western Michigan University interns, student teachers, studying to become rehabilitation counselors. An alarming number of these interns didn't know grade 2 Braille, could not write with a slate and stylus, and had to be instructed in the use of an ordinary Braille writer. One intern didn't know grade 1 Braille, though he had taken and passed a Braille course. Though I wrote negative reports regarding their poor skills, all of these interns passed the internship and presumably all were certified by the Association for the Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired, AER. 
if future generations of blind people, children, and adults are to be literate, and if future generations of blind people hope to be competitive in society, they must have access to the printed word by a method that will allow writing as well as reading. It is time for educators to grit their teeth and admit that a colossal error has been made. Then they must bring themselves up to speed on Braille and all of its tools, mechanical and electronic. It is time for educators to join us in our effort to require that Braille be made available to any child who wants it and to participate in making sure that sufficient funding is available to make mandates and good intentions mean something. Recipes Recipes this month were contributed by members of the National Federation of the Blind of North Dakota. Steak Quesadillas by Jesse Shirick. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Jesse Shirick. Jesse Shirick is the president of the National Federation of the Blind of North Dakota and has this to share about himself. Anyone who knows me well would tell you that I love to cook. One of the most motivating things about cooking is the opportunity to experiment with ingredients. I am a creative person and love to put my own twist on a recipe, so I'm sharing my steak quesadilla story and recipe with you. It's become a go-to recipe in our home, and I'm excited to share it with my Federation family. When my wife Sherry and I were first dating, she came to visit me in North Dakota from the East Coast over Easter weekend. One night we were both starving, and earlier that day, I made some pico de gallo. As you can imagine, we were craving some Mexican food to go with our chips and pico. I thought I would try something for the first time. After throwing some ingredients together and a few minutes of cooking, we had a delicious meal, and I had Sherry fooled into thinking I am an amazing cook. Please, don't tell her how easy the recipe is. Ingredients 8 ounces cooked sirloin steak. You can substitute cooked pork or chicken. 1 red bell pepper sliced. 1 onion sliced. 8 ounces shredded cheddar or pepper jack cheese. 4 8-inch tortillas. 1 teaspoon vegetable oil. Sauce. You can substitute 1 cup salsa for the sauce. 1 teaspoon cumin. 1 teaspoon smoked paprika. 1 tablespoon chili powder. 1 quarter teaspoon cayenne pepper. Optional. 1 cup beef broth. Method. Preheat oven to 375 degrees. Combine cumin, smoked paprika, chili powder, and cayenne pepper in a small bowl. Stir well and set aside. Set frying pan on a burner and set it to medium heat, adding enough oil to coat the pan. Add onions and cook for 10 minutes or until onions are soft, stirring occasionally. Add red peppers and cook for 5 more minutes. Add sauce or salsa to the pan, stir and let most of the moisture evaporate from the pan. Add the steak and stir for 1 minute. Remove pan from heat. Arrange 4 tortillas on a baking sheet and spoon the steak mixture on one half of each tortilla. Top with cheese and fold each tortilla in half. Bake for 10 minutes or until tortillas are crisp. Pico de Gallo by Jesse Shirick. Ingredients 6 tomatoes, diced 1 quarter onion, diced 2 jalapenos, cut fine 1 clove garlic, minced 1 bunch cilantro, chopped 1 teaspoon cumin 1 quarter teaspoon cayenne pepper Lemon juice added to your taste Salt and pepper to taste Method Combine all ingredients in a medium-sized mixing bowl, stir well, and refrigerate for one hour. Enjoy with your favorite tortilla chips. Corn Casserole by Sherry Shirick. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Sherry Shirick. Sherry Shirick has been the National Federation of the Blind of North Dakota First Lady for less than a year. She has also served on the affiliate board as the secretary since 2016. Sherry is our affiliate's social lady, as she loves to plan social events during the holidays. She also has been the chair of the Convention Planning Committee since 2017. Sherry grew up in the Boston area, and as we know, some Boston folks have difficulty pronouncing the letter R. No, it's not a con casserole for prisoners. 
This corn casserole has been served at Sherry's New England Family Thanksgiving Feasts for generations. The tradition continues as the hot dish has now made its way onto the family Thanksgiving table in North Dakota. Maybe it can become a traditional side dish during your family's Thanksgiving dinner too. It smells amazing while cooking and warms your belly. This recipe is shared with the Federation family with love. Ingredients 3 cans, 14.75 ounces, cream-style corn, 3 large eggs, 6 slices of white bread with crust, French's original crispy french-fried onions. Method Preheat oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 175 degrees Celsius. In a large casserole baking dish, add the 3 cans of cream-style corn and 3 eggs. With a fork, beat the eggs into the creamed corn until well blended. Two slices at a time, break up all six pieces of bread into three-inch pieces and pile on top of the egg and cream corn mixture. With a fork, gently push the bread into the mixture and move around until bread is saturated and evenly distributed. Place your casserole dish, uncovered, on center rack in oven. Bake for one hour. Use a fork to check the center. The casserole is cooked thoroughly when the middle is slightly firm and no longer a soft liquid texture. Top off casserole with french fried onions and let sit ten minutes before serving. Enjoy! This recipe can be easily adjusted to a larger or smaller dish. The formula is one egg and two slices of bread per can of cream-style corn. Adapt cooking time accordingly. Mix six servings. Coconut Cream Pie by The Shiriks When Sherry and Jesse bought their first house, their realtor bought them a coconut cream pie from the local bakery just a couple of blocks away. This delectable treat was the first for the couple and left them wanting more. Sherry altered a recipe she found online, and now this delicious pie has been a favorite during the holidays at the Sherrick's home since 2014. Ingredients 1 9-inch pie crust cooked 1 cup shredded sweetened coconut 1 and 1 half cups half and half can substitute with 1 cup milk and 2 third cups heavy cream 1 and 1 half cups unsweetened coconut milk 2 eggs beaten 3 quarter cup white granulated sugar 1 half cup all-purpose flour 1 quarter teaspoon salt 1 teaspoon vanilla, 1 cup fresh whipped cream, can substitute with Cool Whip. Method Preheat oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 175 degrees Celsius. Spread shredded coconut evenly on a baking sheet. Bake 2 minutes, then using a spatula, flip coconut and bake another 2 minutes or until golden brown. Remove coconut from baking sheet and place on a plate to cool. Set aside. In a medium saucepan, combine half and half, coconut milk, eggs, sugar, salt, and flour, then mix well. Bring to a boil over low heat, stirring constantly. Remove from heat and stir in 3 quarter cup toasted coconut and vanilla. Reserve the remaining coconut to top the pie. Pour the filling into the pie shell and chill until firm, about 4 hours. Top with whipped cream and sprinkle remaining coconut over top. Fresh whipped cream. Place metal mixing bowl and metal whisk in freezer for 10 to 15 minutes. Add 2 tablespoons of sugar to a bowl and add in 1 cup heavy whipping cream. Whisk just until the cream reaches stiff peaks. My notes. Electric beaters often come with metal whisks. For pie filling, use fat-free half and half. Low-fat sweetened coconut milk to cut calories and fat. Use light or non-fat Cool Whip instead of fresh whipped cream. Crock-Pot Hamburger Soup by Charlene Oda There is a photo on the page. The caption, Charlene Oda. Charlene serves as an officer on the National Federation of the Blind of North Dakota Board of Directors and is married to Milton Oda, the immediate past president. Ingredients 1 pound extra lean ground beef. You can brown the beef before adding to the soup or add it in raw, even frozen. 4 cups beef broth. 1 15-ounce can kidney beans, drained. 
2 cups frozen mixed vegetables, green beans, peas, corn, carrots, 1 15-ounce can diced tomatoes, 1 chopped onion, 1 chopped red pepper, about 2 tablespoons chili powder, more or less depending on your taste, a little salt and pepper, about 5 ounces cooked macaroni, added at the end. Method. Put everything in the crock pot except the pasta. Cook on low for about 5 to 6 hours. If the hamburger was not cooked before adding to the soup, use a fork to break up the hamburger. Cook the pasta and add to the soup. Mix about 6 generous servings. I put some sour cream and shredded cheese on my bowl of soup too. Paxton's Pork Chops by Paxton Frank There is a photo on the page, the caption, Paxton Frank. Paxton Frank is a student at North Dakota State University and works as a CNA, bracket, certified nursing assistant, close bracket. He has just recently found the National Federation of the Blind of North Dakota, and we are so glad to be connected with him. Ingredients 6 pork chops 2 7-ounce containers of Dijon mustard Juice from 2 to 3 large lemons Olive oil Rosemary Salt and pepper Method The best way to prepare these is to dry any excess moisture off the meat with a paper towel. Salt generously and add a few dashes of pepper for good measure. Take a large casserole dish and cover the bottom with olive oil. Squeeze in your lemon juice and whisk it with the mustard. Add some freshly chopped rosemary and mix all the meat and sauce into the dish. Use your hands and spread it around. Take a few full sprigs of rosemary, give them a good smack, and spread them around the dish. Finally, if you're feeling extra fancy, take some lemon wheels and lay them underneath the meat for some extra aroma. Let sit up to 24 hours. Bake at 400 degrees. Pork chops should read 140 degrees before they are ready to be taken out of the oven. Cover with some aluminum foil and let sit for 5 minutes to let the meat relax and reach that magic 145 degree temperature. Best served with a healthy dose of citrusy, medium-bodied white wine. Monitor Miniatures News from the Federation Family Essay Contest In an effort to support blind children and their education during this trying time of uncertainty, NFB of Texas is offering an essay contest. These essays are meant to be a way for children to explore what they are going through and process their feelings. Hopefully, in writing things down, it will enable children to feel more in control of their surroundings and empowered in their situation. Please contact Emily Gibbs at egibbs at nfbtx.org or 281-968-7347 with questions. Instructions Please answer the following question. How have you dealt with the coronavirus, social distancing, or another life challenge? Upload the answers using the following form. Form is available on the Braille Monitor show notes page. Answers should be no less than 500 words. Answers will be uploaded to NFB Newsline for everyone to read. A $50 gift card will be awarded to one essay in each of the following grade brackets, K-3, 4-6, 7-8, 9-12. Donate to the NFB of Texas https colon slash slash www.nfbtx.org slash donate dot php For immediate release Blind Americans Encountering Discrimination by Restaurants and Other Services During COVID-19 Crisis Restaurants, Banks, and Others Denying Service to Blind Pedestrians Baltimore, Maryland, April 3, 2020 The National Federation of the Blind, America's Civil Rights Organization of the Blind, today demanded that restaurants, banks, and other businesses, as well as drive through COVID-19 testing facilities, provide equal service to blind customers, as required by the Americans with Disabilities Act, whether the blind customer is on foot or in a vehicle. 
Many businesses are offering drive through service only during the COVID-19 pandemic. The National Federation of the Blind has received numerous reports of discrimination against blind people who have tried to access drive through windows on foot, and at least one local television station has reported on the problem. We reject the argument that accessing a drive through window on foot is unsafe for blind people, since we regularly cross busy intersections and interact with vehicles, said Mark Riccobono, president of the National Federation of the Blind. But even if a restaurant, bank, or testing center is unable or unwilling to offer pedestrian access to its drive through window, the law clearly requires that it offer reasonable modifications to allow the blind and others with disabilities to take advantage of its public services. The bottom line is that, especially at a time when access to vehicle transportation for non-drivers is limited, there is no legal or moral excuse for denying service to blind people simply because we are not in a car. To do so is unlawful and discriminatory, and we will not tolerate it. A link to this news article can be found on the NFB Braille Monitor show notes page. In brief, notices and information in this section may be of interest to monitor readers. We are not responsible for the accuracy of the information we have edited only for space and clarity. Word to EPUB is now a reality. I am delighted to let you know that the DAISY Consortium has released Word to EPUB. Finally, a free and easy-to-use tool that creates valid, accessible EPUB files from structured Microsoft Word documents. To learn more about this feature-rich tool, visit the NFB Braille Monitor show notes page. SSA Kiosks to be Made Accessible The National Federation of the Blind and Two Blind Individuals, Lisa Irving and Amy Bonanno, have resolved their 2017 lawsuit against the Social Security Administration and entered into a settlement agreement designed to ensure that SSA's visitor intake processing kiosks are accessible to blind users by December 31, 2021. Per the agreement, SSA will work with a third-party kiosk accessibility expert to redesign the agency's kiosks so that blind users can enter required intake information, including their social security number, privately and independently. NFB Pledge I pledge to participate actively in the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind to achieve equality, opportunity, and security for the blind, to support the policies and programs of the Federation, and to abide by its constitution.